Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's a movement afoot uh, as the world becomes more and more uncertain, as people are plagued by more and more anxiety, and as what I call the spidey sense of many husband, father, protector providers that continues to tingle, everyone knows something's not right about the world. Something's not right about the way that we, many of us, are living our lives. There's something evil about a master plan community, and we can't put our finger on it. Tonight, we're going to try to articulate what that evil is, how to break out of it. We're going to be discussing what's called the Catholic Land Movement, a movement that started really in Scotland in the 1920s and was crystallized by many, many brilliant men, Father Vincent McNabb being one of them. It was picked up on and improved and articulated by Hilaire Balak, uh, Father Fahey. Um, even Chesterton had something to say about the land movement. Uh, what you're going to hear today are the experiences of five different men who are doing it. They're not talking about it. They're doing it. They're supplementing their diets with what they grow and, uh, and what they raise on their own lands. And some of them have been doing it for 10 years and some of them have been doing it for 10 months. Uh, this will be a lively discussion. It's a round table. It's totally going to be Loosely structured, uh, I wouldn't say unstructured, but we're just going to go around the room and we're having a drink together uh, during Lent, these uh, six of us, and we're just going to be talking about the Catholic land movement. We will also, I will be monitoring the live chats, we will be taking your live questions because I think a lot of people want to get closer to the land. Uh, without further ado, we have, uh, we have Michael Thomas of Sharon, we have uh, Ryan Grant, who as you know is in Idaho. We have William, who's voice only from an undisclosed location. We have returning to uh, we, returning to the channel. We have Fred uh, from New York, and also returning to the channel, we have Bug Hall, who is I, I don't know if you ever disclosed your location, but you're in the Upper Midwest. Yep. Uh, let's start with Michael. Michael, you've been doing this the longest. What I, my first question that I want to pass around uh, the group. Uh, because and, and we want to go straight to you in terms of uh, your wisdom in doing this is the idea of making incremental changes in your life, of replacing one thing at a time. 
you don't just wake up tomorrow and become, you know, a, a subsistence farmer or a, you know, or a, uh, a homesteader. Uh, so t walk us through in, in, in about two minutes, if you can, um, the idea of starting small and where, where you started and if you could do it again, where you would start. Um, I just want to say that you're, you're opening an introduction and putting it within the historical context of, you know, the 1920s and 30s um, is, is perfect. Um, and the reason being that is that, um, that, that, that this work, we, we can kind of trace it back. This idea of you know, the, the Catholic land movement in the 1920s and 30s was really a reaction to the post-World War I um, uh, consolidation of nations, the destruction of the classical world. And uh, the um, the industrialism, both of warfare and of uh, and of and of uh, production, right? So you had this massive consolidation into cities, and people resisted that. There was a reaction against that that movement of modernity to industrialize everything, and that reaction against it found a home in the Catholic land movement. We are witnessing a similar consolidation in our present world. Um, it's, it's a global technocratic consolidation <laughs> of power. Um, it's a destruction of uh, traditional patterns. Uh, another is kind of gained momentum. And so we are, the Catholic, the contemporary Catholic movement, land movement is really, um, is, is a reactionary movement against that consolidation. That's why you, you identified Mike, like there's all these people around the world who sense that something's not right, something is happening, and they want to react against it and go in a different direction. And that's that's precisely what the Catholic land movement offers. But it's best understood within the context of the continued work that was started by Father Vincent McNabb and Catholics and saints before him who were, you know, you, you can you can even go back to St. Benedict, right? <laughs> um, uh, so a, you, you can really find a thread in Catholicism of people saying, we need to separate ourselves from the collapsing empire. We need to separate ourselves from 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 the, uh, the evil of society as Christians, and we need to build some type of alternative polis, you know, a, a parallel polis, some people call it, or whatever. And so, that understanding it in that context um, says that it's a very very long trip, and it's something that's been happening to various degrees and in various manifests for a very very long time. Oftentimes millennials or, or younger people contact me and they're like, you know, buying land is way out of my reach. What do I do? You know, um, I, I can't just go start homesteading, but I find myself daydreaming about it all the time. My encouragement to people is that there's the grace that God offers us in the soils and the grace in the gifts of our communion with the natural world and, and our rightful dominion and rightful stewardship of that world is something that everyone can access, um, however incrementally. There might be very, very small ways in your life where you can bring your proximity to that grace closer. And so it's a personal discernment, right? My vocation, Mike, isn't the same as your vocation. My, my virtue looks different. My rising to it looks different. And so we have to ask ourselves the question within the context of how do I bring myself closer to the grace that God has left us in this good earth, you know, and in, in, in the soil? And, and where is my grace and story to play in the dominion that he calls me to over it? right? What, how do I be a good steward? How do I be a good father? This finds emergence in our domestic lives. It finds emergence in how we, uh, you know, feed ourselves, how we answer questions of all of our primary things, you know, food, water, shelter, clothing, those are very primary things we need to survive. We all answer those questions day to day. 
And so a discernment that includes how do I answer those questions of procuring those first things in a way that brings me closer to the natural order and grace that God has left us. Um, and that, again, just look, it could be one person that could be just starting to garden, you know, um, for me last year, it was like putting in a hand pump well, so, so I could, you know, disengage from, you know, electricity and, and pump my water, um, for, you know, two years before that, it was, you know, really coming into the idea that I could, um, you know, save seeds, you know, that's the stage that I was at. I, I need, oh, I've gardened a couple of years. I need to start saving my seeds. That's the next step to bring me in close proximity to the gifts that God gives us in, in, in a, in, in like it, the, the relationship to that thing being unmediated, not mediated by usury, governmental bodies, larger agencies, right? Subsidiarity. I'm answering the problem at the smallest scale possible. Um, and so, right, for me, it's easy. But for somebody else, it might just be like meeting a local farmer and buying their produce from them. Sure. You know? And I, I think that's I think that's a really great place to start. Let me kick it over to Ryan. Ryan, uh, probably on this stream, I, 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 it may be a toss-up between you and William in terms of who's runner-up for length of time doing this. Um, but but I, I like the idea of at least you know starting out within your local economy. That may be the best first step. What do you think? I absolutely think it is to get yourself. That's the first step to being disentangled from the centralized technocratic structure that uh, Michael was speaking of, uh, where you put that exactly right. And so it used to be people network, people uh, produced food. You had uh, food production that was outside of cities that would produce such and such, you know, goods such and such crops. And you could always pick them up, you know, in, in local markets. And then gradually as everything's getting central, you think of like a, a, a butcher, for example. Um, you, you took your animals and it, to, you had butchers all around this country. They could sell directly to the public. So you could make a decent living as a butcher selling directly to the public. But no, no, no you're not allowed to do that because a certain fellow named Upton Sinclair came around, uh, wrote a book uh, about the horrors of the slaughterhouse, which actually described the centralized meatpacking facilities, not the smaller, more family-owned uh, you know, butcheries. And so what happened is that you get new laws. Oh, it's all got to be centralized. Now you got to be just like the guys who are the worst offenders at all this stuff. And now you're all centralized on the system. And <laughs> so they took away. So your butchers start disappearing. Everything has to go straight to, you know, these factories and come back in order to get in the stores. You can't sell directly to the public. Uh, you can do things like buy a share of a cow or buy a whole cow and then you'll go to the butcher and, and they what do they market with? Not for resale because it's all supposed to be on the centralized system. They don't want you doing it that way. Yeah. And so uh, and, and what happened in, in 2020, 2021? Oh, we, we don't have enough feed for these animals because all these countries are locking down their soybeans and locking down their corn. Not that I think you should be feeding your livestock those things, especially not soybeans. Um, but but that's that's a whole different issue. Um, but nevertheless, they're not able to feed the animals. And they said, oh, well, let us sell directly to the public. And the FDA is like, what? Or the, sorry, USDA is like, what, you kidding? Not a chance. So that they had a slaughter to just kill all these animals. All completely went to waste. Um, so that's what happens on a centralized system. It, it has no room for, for real human events. It has no room for human interaction. It just becomes the machine continuing to grind things yeah. under its weight. It's not good for your food. It's not good for us. So the more you disconnect from the matrix of modern society, the better. And how you know the best way to do that? Farmers markets, 
Um, you know, there, there's a local grocery store here in uh, Coeur d'Alene. It's called Pilgrims. I'm not in Coeur d'Alene, but it's just nearby, right? And the the owner's a bit of an anarchist libertarian of sorts, and he, you know, is is very big on networking with his local community. So he has, you know, he has his own greenhouses growing their own produce that they sell in the store, and they network with local farmers and whatnot, and and, uh, and to bring in organic produce that is all that is all um, produce it produced locally, and so you, that that's your first step for breaking away from uh, the system, and that didn't dawn on me I think until about 2006, if I remember right, um, and it's when I started as an assistant manager at Walmart. The, the, the devil's biggest retailer, the evilest of evil uh, companies. And, what, a, what, a, what an irony. And I got done reading Belloc, or I was reading McNabb's Read, one of the two. Um, and, and I just stopped and I was just like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> this is horrible. But it, it's just that the, the economics of it, I, I wasn't able to get a job anywhere else at the time. Uh, so I was overqualified for everything else I wanted to do. So uh, so as, as I you know spend my time there, eventually I'm looking at the books and I, I'm looking at the amount of money that's going back to the shareholders. And I was just like, we could double everybody's salary in the store and still send a, an unbelievable amount of money back to Arkansas. It's not even funny, but no, that that's absolutely out of the question. You could never do a thing like that. So I'm just scratching my head about this whole system. And it's like, that's when I finally decided I got to get out of here. I took a job teaching Latin. I took about a 40% pay cut to do that. And I was a lot happier. So that that was kind of that first step, and then it's I'm just not going to shop there. I don't even want to go in there. And every once in a while, there'll be the one thing you got to get me to do. And then I'm reminded why I don't want to have anything to do with this. So the more you disconnect, the more you stop feeding the beast. The, that when where there's the demand, the product will come to meet it typically because people will sense, hey, yeah, why can't we get organic food around here? And then people will say, oh, let's do it. So that's always your first step. But I think where we're at now, it's not necessarily going to be enough, especially when the technocratic control on money comes in through the digitalized currency and you're going to have to have something. And that's why in the last probably four years, I think, um, what are we, yeah, 2022 last four years, we've been trying to grow our own food as much as we can failed at first. Um, and then tried and tried again. Last year, we had a very good year. Uh, we were eating most, most of what we were eating all throughout the winter came from our own animals and our own, uh, you know, crops wow. in the field. So I can do it, anybody can do it. I'm just going to put it that way. And it's not just me, of course. My wife was raised, she did 4-H. I was raised suburban, eastern Connecticut with no skills whatsoever uh, in any of these things. And she, my wife was raised 4-H and she has a good bit of knowledge that I've been gaining on, double, you know, learning from, then, then fact-checking myself and my own research, double-checking things. So, it, it, you know, between that, but it, it's like, I mean, I can butcher, uh, you know, smaller livestock like uh, sheep and goats. Um, and, you know, it was really the same as a deer if you really butcher deer. And it's not that hard. It, and that's yeah. why I always say yeah. if I can do it, anybody can do it because I'm not competently trained in, in these matters. I was raised with a can't do attitude. Just call someone else, have them do it. And uh, I've had to learn and I've had to get overcome that uh, attitude that I was raised with. That, yeah, yeah, just call somebody else. Don't, don't do it yourself. I've had to overcome that and have the courage to try to do it myself, even though I might break it. And that's been a real hard thing to, to, to do. Let's do quick intros for uh, for the other three as well in terms of um, what compelled you into this movement, how long you've been in. Uh, and, and I think, I think I, Will, William, I don't know 
the answer to that question for you, but I do know that Fred and Bug, your answers to these questions is really exciting and, and really radical from where you were to where you are now. Uh, but William, I'll, I'll throw it over to you next in terms of how long you've been doing it, how much land you have, and your thoughts on on just getting started. Yeah. Uh, so, well, um, I grew up where I'm farming now, and I'm farming on a very small, but uh, still, but a commercial scale. Um, so this is it. Sort of uh, goes beyond mere homesteading for me because I'm selling a lot of well, uh, most of what I'm growing. But obviously, uh, originally got interested in in homesteading, uh, you know, secularly, uh, just not, not, uh, not in the same way as other people. I don't think, uh, or, or not, I don't know, uh, not, not from like kind of a, a prepper doomer type perspective, but just because, um, uh, you know, the idea of growing, th- growing things, uh, thrilled me and, uh, as a, as a younger guy and, um, still does. And I just sort of in the pursuit for, um, <clears throat> in life, um, kind of came to an early conclusion that uh, interacting with the natural world and doing so in a, a creative and productive way uh, in a way that um, uh, is, is synergistic with, with natural systems uh, was going to be the, the best way to do that for me. Um, and the, um, you know, longing for a, a relationship with the divine, uh, which eventually transmuted into um you know, uh, finding that in traditional Catholicism, um, it just kind of naturally grew out of that, I think, because I think that, uh, I sort of assumed that going, going into that, you know, coming out of school and, and starting to farm and manage my family's land and try and improve my family's land, which was, uh, very much depleted and, uh, beat up. Um, I sort of thought that that in and of itself would provide me with fulfillment and meaning and purpose and, uh, et cetera, those sorts of, uh, you know, abstract concepts, uh, and after a year or two, just finding, finding myself very spiritually, uh, myself very spiritually depleted, uh, and just realizing that I was going to have to, um, find something more profound to, uh, uh, anchor my, you know, life trajectory, my life journey. And, um, you know, after, after some searching, I just, uh, went with the, the deepest thing I could find, which was traditional Catholicism. So I became Catholic about a year ago. I uh, was confirmed Catholic. I was baptized already uh, in a different Christian de- denomination. But um, uh, so at least you know the baptism is valid. Yes, it was a valid <laughs> baptism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, my godparents um, were both real Catholics. Uh, so uh, my my priest was a. Uh, I, I was I was apprehensive to tell my priest that because I thought that maybe he would. Um, you know, have admonished them for uh, participating in a non-Catholic baptism, but he was actually pleased because he said that, uh, you know, they would have been there to make sure that it was all done properly. So uh, <laughs> that was nice. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, so that's my, that's an introduction to, to how I got into, you know, homesteading farming and then also into Catholicism, but, um, uh, and, and how, how to start, that's the, that was the other question. Um, yeah. yeah, I think um, for people out there, uh, I think, you know, my, just on an abstract level, my first two pieces of advice would be to start small, uh, you know, and that can be as small as like just growing one thing, just growing, you know, like a a couple um, pots of herbs, you know, in your garden, in your kitchen um, windowsill, uh, you know, thyme and rosemary and and parsley or something like that. Uh, 
and uh, that that's enough to get you going. I think that <laughs> what this all comes down to is, um, you know, uh, coagitating with with God and his uh, in his you know uh, creative potential. And um, so, literally, just growing one thing um, is is enough to get you going. And uh, as as Michael was talking about before, um, the, this all uh, compounds and builds on itself. And and you know you'll the, the year after you'll feel much more. The, once you've gotten the hang of something small, the um, <laughs> the trajectory uh, is exponential, and you can you'll you'll feel like you'll be able to take on a lot more uh, yeah. sooner than you might think. And um, the other thing I would say is you know uh, especially I think people often have dreams of doing things commercially, uh, as I certainly did. I definitely jumped into the deep end uh, headfirst into doing what I'm doing um, on a commercial level rather than on just a sort of uh, need level for my family and you know community um, and I do regret doing it that way a little bit I wish I had started off just you know trying to seeing what I'm seeing someone saying grow what you like and I think that's a really good advice grow what your family likes to eat um, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and um, you know go from there and maybe what your neighbor what your neighbors might like and and grow you know um, and you'll you'll figure out what you like to do from that and be able to uh, hone your skills accordingly and eventually maybe um, scale up to something commercial. Um, but you just don't know what you're going to like to do, what makes sense on your land and in your context until you've actually tried it. And it, it usually doesn't make sense to, to, you know, invest in infrastructure and other things like that. Uh, sure. You know, absent that knowledge. So yeah, sure. that's, that's my, that's my two cents. on well, that. That's, a, that's a great intro. And uh, my only reaction to that is I probably wouldn't start, personally by growing Brussels sprouts if the idea is to start with something that you actually really want to eat. Leave <laughs> Brussels sprouts alone. Yeah, Brussels sprouts are good. <laughs> now, um, uh, Bug, I, I want to kick it over to you next because uh, you've you've made a radical transition. You and Fred probably have the most radical transitions in within the last couple of years, I, I think. Um, lots of people may be familiar with your transition, but if you would just, just give us an idea of, of, uh, where, where you've come in the last like two years. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in Hollywood, uh, making movies, um, did about a hundred movies and TV shows over about 30 years. Um, after I converted, so I had also done a lot of writing and stuff as well. I had a script at Universal and various things. And um, I converted about nine, ten years ago. Um, and practically overnight, I realized that there were uh, very little job opportunities for me uh, because of the moral conundrum of making movies in Hollywood. Uh, so my first instinct was, well, you know, start my own company. And I did that with some friends. And we ran a development company to create our own projects. Uh, and, you know, I tried really hard at that for a long time, only to continue to be foiled, especially the more I learned about the faith, right? I mean, the more you dig into Belloc and Chesterton and reading various encyclicals on uh, Catholic economics and, you know, you start looking at film financing and you start looking at distribution and you start looking at all the widgets involved. And it's like an endless trap. Um <clears throat> And it really plagued me, uh, it plagued my conscience. Um, I, uh, I really struggled to reconcile my conscience with just my day-to-day -day life. Um, and, 
uh, I won't get into the details of, of the sort of collapse of that, uh, th that problem, but I eventually had a big collapse there and, and, and realized I need to figure out what's going on here. Um, and you know, that's all I knew. All I knew was, was Hollywood. I mean, I had done that for 30 years. I had made a living at it. I had a company and, you know, I was working with, uh, Oscar winning writers and selling shows to Netflix and writing stuff for Selena Gomez. And, you know, it's just, it was hard to stop and go, maybe I need to do something completely different. Um, I, I think it's fair to say it's the scariest thing I've ever done. Um, uh, but that's what I did. Uh, so I spent about a year, you know, my very first step in that process was spending about maybe not a full year, six months or so, just trying to figure out what to do, looking at various career options and how am I going to provide for my family? Uh, and it finally hit me that everywhere I looked, I kept finding the same problems. I mean, once you get into, you know, Michael touched on uh, usury and, you know, things like that. When you really dig down deep um, with uh, Catholic economics and, I mean, just general moral theology, uh, and then you pair that with the history of the church and you really look at, I mean, because there's a, there's a truth in the history of the church, right? You see the application of moral theology um, if you look at the trajectory of Catholic history and you look at the trajectory, you know, coming up out of the Roman system uh, with slavery and into serfdom and then peasantry and watching that transition, there's, there's a lot to be learned there. And I'm a big history buff as well. So um, I realized one day that nobody had ever heard of a career um, for pretty much all of Catholic history. They just provided for their families in pretty much the most simplest ways, right? They, they got down to the nitty gritty of tilling and keeping, um, toiling in thistles and thorns. Uh, so that sent me down the road of learning about um, agrarianism. Uh, and and uh, in my old job, I was very much sort of a data guy. Um, I was a story engineer. So when I dive into something, I have to go all the way, right? So recognizing michael touched on the history of agrarianism here in america you know after world war one they needed to repurpose all of the chemical weapons uh the, the nitrates they were using and that got they realized they could grow larger crops and um they didn't have the means to figure <laughs> out whether those crops were good for you or not um and that led towards monoculture farming um it, well it already existed to obviously a certain degree but it greatly expanded monoculture farming and the depletion of soil and, and you know it's a whole cascade of problems and as i dug through that um i said okay this looks fun this looks like a challenge like what is how do you tackle um a very new problem right the the continual consolidation of power and consolidation of food and consolidation of our entire livelihoods as we're slowly ripped away from it, right? Um, how do you circumvent that and attack that problem? And of course, the solutions are always old solutions. Um, so that was that was really it for me. Uh, I sat down and talked with my wife. Um, yeah. The intersecting idea for me too was that when I first converted, my first a food in the faith, if you will, was the Desert Fathers monasticism. Um, I went and lived in the desert for six months um, right after my conversion. I thought I lost my mind. Um, and so 
I spent a lot of time praying about it and uh, um, coming up with this idea of, you know, what does what does a classical, traditional, monastic kind of life, agrarian monastic life, look like today? Can it be done? And I didn't really have an answer to that, um, so I thought I'd try it, uh, and that was that was really it. My wife was. Uh, as excited as I was, which I didn't quite expect. I thought it was going to take a lot. <laughs> you guys didn't ease in at all. I no. Mean, as, as to, like, no. Like Michael and Ryan are talking about start with chickens, start with smaller animals. You guys just literally went for it. So my my wife grew up in the city um, and has never lived anywhere but the city. And uh, it was crazy to see how excited she was as I kind of laid this really abstract idea out. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it was extremely abstract and zero practical um, when I had the idea. Um, but I wanted to try it and I wanted to prove kind of to myself um, that it could be done. Um, I had a lot of attachments, right? And we're not going to get to heaven with, with any of our attachments left intact. So I had a lot of attachments to my old career, um, to a certain kind of lifestyle and um, an ease and a comfort. Um, and so I wanted to make us as uncomfortable as possible. And I'm, I'm an, I'm an extremist. I've always been an extremist. So, so that was kind of it. We said, okay, let's donate everything we have you know, all the way down to, you know, to, to basically the last dollar, um, our second car, let's get rid of all of it and start, start kind of from scratch. And let's see, let's see how we can drag ourselves into this, this situation. So my principal leans far more heavily on the monastic idea and the agrarian idea is a necessity of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've, I've come to define it as non-transactionalism, right? So, you know, what a vow of poverty for a family, obviously I have to provide for my family. So it's not total poverty. It's not St. Francis. Um, it's essentially sort of hyper simplicity, uh, and then non-transactionalism. So we first look like many of you already stated, we looked at what we um, what we eat, right? What 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 do we consume? Uh, my diet at that point was uh, roughly eighty to eighty five percent beef, um, so that we knew that was going to be on the menu. Um, and I started looking into ruminants <laughs> and cattle and and all of that. The day I got my cattle was one of the scariest days of my life, almost as scary as quitting a career of thirty years. Um, you know, these massive animals with horns, and I haven't. I know nothing practical about cows. I, mean, I, I had read a ton. I had been reading for eight months solid, right? And watching every video under the sun and trying to teach myself, learning everything about how ruminants function and pop, proper grass uh, uh, health and soil health. And um, we want to do, you know, we have a very, very, very small property. So we do a daily rotational grazing system to try and maximize our grass yield for our cows and get through the whole year without any input, without buying anything. But also committed ahead of time to using roughly double what our needs are of the things that we consume. And then those uh, those goods we trade with our community. So uh, trade and, you know, we live in a really cool Catholic community that's already kind of doing what we wanted to do in, in various ways. So we we found that we s sort of slipped right into this cool system where everyone's kind of just given everything extra away anyway. Um, and so far we're very far from 
fulfilling our non-transactional uh, uh, you know, state that, we, that we're aiming for. Very far from that. Um, but at this point, I think we're, you know, we're 65, 70% there. Um, and I've got us on a three-year plan to try and hit that mark. Yeah. So. And, and, and honestly, I, that's remarkable that, that within three years, you're, you're on a glide path to get there. Fred has had a, a, perhaps as equally a, um, an astonishing transition as well. And I, uh, Fred coming from uh, a very urban environment in, right. in New Jersey and just doing it. I mean, how has that been for you? It's it's you're coming up on your first year mark of leaving everything behind. <laughs> Tell us about it, Fred. Well, yeah, I mean, well, going back to what Bob just said, during my <clears throat> my early marriage, I I I asked my wife about the monastic type of life, you know, poverty and all that and living off the land and of course she would have none of it. So I had put that on hold for a while. So anyway, I had, a, you know, I was working in facilities most of my life. I was in construction, carpentry, plumbing, and all that. I was, I was director of facilities at Fairleigh Dickinson. So I was involved in construction and those type of things. Um, I, at one point, I was working for the Newark Archdiocese when uh, Archbishop McCarrick was still there before he became Cardinal McCarrick. And I started a, uh, a building trades program there. Uh, I worked in the uh, social service uh, agency, also with the refugee resettlement program, which I met fascinating people from around the globe and, and heard their stories. Um, and, and yet, uh, well, okay, I was, we were growing up, uh, we grew up in urban New Jersey. I was working in Newark, New Jersey. You can't get any more urban than Newark, New Jersey. Uh, but yet we still had our own garden in the backyard. My wife and I would grow things. Um, uh, also had the pool for the kids and everything else that people have in the cities. And, you know, all, every now and then my wife would say, you know, you should be a farmer. I said, how can I be a farmer? I mean, I have bills to pay. I have the kids, yada, yada. But they often, it was never far from, you know, my mind. But I just didn't see how it could happen. So anyway, make a long story short, my kids are grown up. I had grandkids. So I retired a couple, a couple of years ago. And where we were in New Jersey was, was getting rough. The, uh, there was gangs. There was um, shootings and murders right around the block and everything. So we were looking to get out for quite a while. Um, I couldn't find anything that I wanted close to New Jersey. And I was following uh, Mike and his wife on Twitter, and I saw the things that Mike would post and his wife Jenny would post, and I said, this place looks like heaven. So I came up last year to meet Mike and his wife and his wonderful family, and I said, let me see if there's any land for sale up there. And of course there was. So I fell in love with this place, which is right a few miles from Mike. And it's a, it's a few acres, and I have, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful fields. The people here worked it. They had a lot of produce that they would sell, um, and so that's where we are right now. We're going to start doing that this year. I've been renovating the house since we got here. That's what I've also been doing all my life: is renovations and carpentry, things like that. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, I sold high and I bought low. So the point is that people can do this. If you have 
if you own a home someplace, there are many, many good locations to buy property. The other thing I, I also wanted to do was to is to try to find a uh, a Catholic community. Um, hopefully, a traditional Latin mass. And like last year, that was just just like a dream. And this and right now, it's a reality. Okay, we found a we found a church that's under the radar that has the traditional Latin mass. Um, we go there every Sunday. We have a small community in there, and it's growing. And that's that's my main focus is the Catholic aspect of this. That I mean, yeah, you, people could go grow things and do wonderful things, but if it's not centered in Catholicism, it's not centered around the Eucharist. Yeah, uh, it's you know, it's just you're just telling soil. But the thing is to have a community of people you know, involved in the same thing. It's just a wonderful thing. And like last year was only a, a thought and here it is a reality. So that's, and that's where we are. And Michael incredible. and I are, are working towards that goal. We're going to have some events this year um, up here and our community is really growing. And it's, I think it's just the work of God, to be honest with you. It is, it, it's got to be the work of God and you are a mover and a shaker. I want to take a quick second and plug this book, the church in the land. My father, Vincent McNabb, uh, prefaced by William Fahey. I, I, I do think that this would be a good primer. Um, I want to give a quick roadmap as well, too, because we've just done our introductory comments and we're 40 minutes into the stream. <laughs> uh, so I want to I I prime for some of the topics I thought we could discuss. And then, um, and then I'll leave it to you, gentlemen, to jump in the one or two that really speak to you that you've either experienced or you really want to comment on. But I want to talk about a couple things uh, first. So you've already pointed out, make incremental changes. And it starts local, and it starts with smaller uh, things. And, and I think one of you said, just grow an herb in your kitchen as a good start, just to see how God's bounty works. Um, I want to get thoughts on the next the, the the following topics during the course of this stream. Um, appropriate size. How much land do you really need to sustain a family if you had to? And what are the characteristics of that land? I.e., running water, uh, what types of soil, how much how much uh, cleared area versus how much uh, mm -hmm. lumber, etc. Um, I want to get your your thoughts on the idea of uh, leasing land to uh to work it uh, and and even potentially this is a radical idea living in a hotel to do it um uh types of uh, uh, types of jobs that you can have in terms of day jobs while you transition in remote jobs um thoughts around that and then i want to conclude the discussion with uh, exactly what fred concluded his his introduction on in terms of centering this around a community because the simple fact of the matter is, and, and many of us know this very well, that the trad orders, let's say, the big three or the big four, they are focused on the, the large metro areas, perhaps as they should be, because they're, they, they can reach more souls that way. But if we move out hours out into the hinterland, mm -hmm. it makes sacrament, sacramentalism pretty hard. Um, and, and anyone's thoughts on, on how to solve that problem and, or is this just something that you offer up? Did you say, okay, on Sundays and Holy days, it's going to be a five hour, uh, experience for us, two hours there and two hours home. 
um, that sort of thing. And maybe you live that that dream for a while, or do you build a chapel, or do you take in a retired priest? Uh, thoughts on that? So let's let's start um, let's start with the size of of the property, and 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 who's who here? Do you think has the smallest <laughs> plot amongst amongst uh, the five of you gentlemen? And and describe to us how you can do more with less. I think it might be me. I'm on three acres. Anybody anybody lower than that? No, I'm about the same, Bug. I'm about the same. Okay. Yes. I'm at about but five years. I have option to get another twenty-five, so I'm not nice. that also. <laughs> well, we ended up on three specifically in answer to your question. Like so I, I once we committed to this idea of poverty, hypersimplicity, and non-transactionalism, um, we had come across a deal that was essentially a lease to buy. Um, and I knew that we, because I was no longer going to have an income, um, I no longer had an income. Uh, I knew that the clock was going to be ticking and sort of the, I mean, the goal of poverty is first and foremost to live in union with Christ's poverty. Um, but also to foster a, a, a much deeper holy trust, right? The, the idea that God will provide for you, uh, uh if he wants to. Right. If, if it's good for you, if it's if you're on the right track or whatever the case may be, right? God's providence uh, is, is outside of our our understanding sometimes. So I had done a lot of research on ruminants, on how much grass we needed to grow uh, to feed what we needed to eat. Um, and I had crunched the numbers and crunched the numbers. And I settled right around uh, three acres. Um, and, you know, I, I had some wiggle room there. And, and so I, I, I said, most people kind of look at budgets and say, well, what's the most, uh, what's the highest budget range for us? And then they aim for their budget and they'd say, stay within your budget. I did the opposite. I didn't really care what prices were so much as what is the least amount that I can buy to fulfill this, uh, this thing that we're trying to do. Um, and that's what we aimed for. No matter how tempting other properties were, we just kept looking for the smallest possible thing that could fulfill it. Downsizing, you know, our house uh, is uh, less than half the size of our house in, in Los Angeles. And so we major, major downsize is two bedrooms and there's nowhere to, you know, I, I can, I can add on to, I, I have a lot of construction skills as well. So I can maybe add on to it someday or try and squeeze some space out of a closet, you know, when we start having boys, I don't know, but, um, <laughs> but essentially we're just kind of winging it on that. It's, it's, a, it's a small place. Uh, and yeah, if, if, I, I think you have to, you have to do, at least put in some of the work to kind of understand what what it takes to grow, what you eat, right? For us, we were predominantly focused on the ruminants. We wanted milk from our goats and we wanted meat from our cows and we needed X amount. And so that kind of determined the size of the land for us. Um, and then we went after it and we just kept praying. If we're going to do this lease to buy thing, God's going to have to provide the means. Um, and in a in a pretty miraculous way he did um and that's what's what's happened for me again and again is that the more i i take that approach to things and just say you know people start screaming about prudence right um they typically mean carnal prudence they don't mean real real uh, uh the virtue of prudence typically um and when i kind of throw that out the window and i just <laughs> think well, this is what we're going to do and god will bless it uh, or he won't because it's wrong and we'll just have to wait and see or he wants us to suffer more or whatever. Right. Um, and again and again, things kind of keep getting proven to me. So, um, 
you know, we, we took the furnace out because we want to get off. We want to get off uh, uh, city gas and whatever because we are on city gas where we are. We're pretty yeah. remote, but we are on city gas. And and I took the furnace out, and uh, a very good friend of mine just happened to be uh, looking to either sell or throw out his his uh, wood burning stove, and I had just kind of finagled how I was going to heat the house with a wood stove and a system that was going to work for us to get free wood. And then the stove kind of just showed up. So things like that continue to happen. I'm not saying go out there and burn your life down. You know, um, <laughs> I might end up being a, a, a cautionary tale. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, this reminds me of what something that Michael Thomas of Sharon was, was discussing off camera and the, uh, the idea of relying on God's providence. In fact, this is what led, uh, in, in some ways to your conversion to the Catholic faith, Michael, um, talk to us about the idea of, I, I guess, seasonality, for example, something that we moderns have totally lost, uh, living according to the seasons, um, eating according to the seasons. This is something that our, our ancestors in the faith all understood. And, and even just living that life is what brought you to the faith, which is, I think, what makes your story so interesting, because a lot of us came to the faith and then we said, oh, we have to get to the land now. But you were on the land already, and then that brought you to the faith. So talk to us about that. And you're muted still. Sorry. Mike, you're muted. Thank you, Bug. <laughs> um, much of modernity is, is the inversion of natural order. Um, and so unworking that or coming away from that um, and experiencing the grace that natural order um, gives us both in our domestic life and our family life and our relationship to the land. William touched on it and I, I knew there was much greater depth to what he was saying when he, he said, I, you used a word, William, help me with the word that you used. You, uh, you, you were, you were working like in co-union with God's grace. It was a great word. Co Co-agitating. It's a, uh, yes, that's um, a great blanking, word. <laughs> blank on the verse, but in a, uh... First Corinthians, Paul says, um, we are God's coagitators. So that's where I got it. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, brother. Um, and so, uh, and so when you work in the cadence of natural order, uh, coagitating with the graces that God gives us <laughs> and, and, the, and the grace that God is working in this world, um, a seasonality emerges. Um, in that there's like a cadence and a rhythm, there's a time for things, lambs. You know, lambs come in spring, the apples fall in fall, the grass is ready to cut in summer, the, the, the wood gets burned in winter. There emerges this like piece of, of order and cadence with the natural world that um, is transformational for people who experience it. That's, that's how I experience my life now. A lot of my first things or the, the things there's... The things that are um, the things that give me sustenance and my family sustenance, I'm in close proximity to many of them. I've 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 midwifed, you know, or husbanded the the same lamb that I witnessed their joy on pasture and their suckling, and I witness them fatten, and 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 then and then I take them to slaughter, and I, and I and I and I process them. And then, and then I witness my children eating them. And then my kids are nourished by them who then go out to 
carry the next lamb to hay to the next lambs that and the, you you see how the, the things just begin to fold into each other in such a complex and bittersweet and beautiful way um that that involves this this amazing communion uh, um it's it's it, and it's profound to witness and once you witness it you witness this kind of like you know the, the mystery of our communion with the world really emerges and uh, it's been said a couple times, but I don't think it can be said enough how um, how the Eucharist is really the center of our whole reality. Um, and so, and as a Catholic, it, it, there's like an awareness of that. There's an awareness that the presence of God is there in, in the Eucharist. And Fred talked about that being the center of really the Catholic land movement and really the, the center of Catholicism, right? What we're carrying that presence of Christ um, through our sacraments and, and, and that's God. And so, but, 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 but the Eucharist in and of itself is uh, the sacramental grace itself has form and that form has, it has instruction and lessons. And, and so at this very core, the very core of Catholicism is like the eating of bread and the drinking of wine. Mm. It's an act of communion with landscape. You know, the, the transfiguration is real, but Christ is is also having us perform these sacraments to those things you know that's where he transforms so there's instruction there um and that instruction draws you close if taken to it's like absolute like granular practicalities it, it instructs us to have a relationship with the landscape to have a relationship with producers to have a relationship with you know god's again christ's first miracle is the transformation of of, of wine right um, um, this this is a very if I if I take my where my camera if I take if I take apples and leave them in a barrel the, the juice that it miraculously transforms to cider that that's what God does all by itself if I just leave it there right Christ's first miracle just happens hmm. if I set up the right parameters you know it doesn't happen as quickly as he did it for for the wedding <laughs> feast but 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 it happens nonetheless right um, all these things are are uh, are instructional to our relationship with the, with the natural world and the natural cadence of things. Um, and so, um, and so that seasonality that you're talking about, I think as you live an agrarian life and you become close to that, um, it, it, that, that the, the mystery, the beauty, the truth and the power of that seasonal transformation, like works on you, it works on who you are. It works on your, the way that you look at the world that works on, on your, your, your actual physical body, you know, it, it changes you. Um, and, uh, and Catholicism as, as the core and truth that all of reality revolves around, of course, carries those truths um, right yeah. at its center. Yeah. And so, and so, um, and so, yeah, so that's my answer to living seasonally. I do want to want to back up to the size of lamb question that Bug kind of answered a little bit and just just give my two cents on that real quick, um, which is you can have like 550 acres of no topsoil desert <laughs> that you can't do anything with. Right, right. And you can have two acres of stacked gardens that feeds like an entire neighborhood, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it is not um, the quantity of land. It is the right. quality and the conditions and the context in which that land exists is, is the major consideration. So I would, I would urge young homesteaders or young people who, you know, maybe who haven't embarked on the like, what kind of land do I want? Um, quantity is only a, a part of it. Um, you, you know, things have to be kind of tied to what you feel like your vocation and calling is. But, 
but 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 it's it's the quality of the land so i would parse out your like you know your five primary things break it down as easy as possible where's my heat where's my shelter where's my you know where's my food where's my uh clothes you know where where, where do these things come from where do I envision myself getting from them if I bring myself into like close proximity with them? Right. Water's the first one, Clint. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, and then, and then see if the land that you're, that you're looking at answers those questions. Um, because then, then it becomes like a, 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 a beautiful, you know, there, there becomes like a, 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 the potential for a relationship condensed onto that piece of property that might not exist if you buy, swamp in 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 florida you know or borderland you know desert in texas or rocky soil in in you know idaho mountainside somewhere you know i have 24 acres tilled right (laughs) Uh, stewarded right i could feed a city off my land Hmm. you know i i i could feed god's army let's um so so uh you know that there's there's it all it all depends. I always uh, point people for daydreaming to John Seymour. He's a beautiful writer. He has little illustrations. Don't know if he's Catholic, English. They love gardening and farming, um, and uh, and he's got like five acre homestead plans and stuff like this. And he really shows you like how all the little systems work. And he doesn't get lost in all the, uh, you know, the, uh, the the traps of uh, ideology and other things. He just kind of like shows you like, hey, here's what you can do with five acres. Here's your oat patch. Here's your you know. He leans on traditional agriculture quite a bit and and it's really good daydream fodder and also it's just pretty pick pretty watercolors that he draws and stuff. so john seymour really show you how to maximize like a small amount of acreage but again it's quality not quantity the way is narrow right so um (laughs) as it is with most things so so there you go Um, no that's a that's a great answer uh ryan i want you uh i want to ask you about uh bartering because i know you you really understand this and you've done it and and specifically bartering, you know, things like trade labor, or for other things that you need. So, for example, uh, if if you know some basic carpentry or some plumbing or electrical, you know, uh, weaving the the, the trades uh, into this idea of returning to the land and and within the context of the local economy. So the principle of barter. Uh, am I coming through okay? Great. The principle of barter is to acquire a thing you want by trading an already existing piece of wealth. So you have capital, uh, which is the raw materials that what you labor upon and you transform into wealth. Now, that wealth might in turn work as capital and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, you get a piece of iron and you work it into a hammerhead. And now you've made a hammer and that hammer is wealth, but also that will play into your labor uh, you know, to produce things and, and what have you. So just for those terms, you're basically trying to make a, a lateral exchange of wealth. And the problem then often happens in barter is that you you want to trade this thing, but it's not exactly worth that thing you want. It might be a little less, might be a little more, but that's what the other person wants in order to make this trade work. And sometimes you can come up with little odds and ends that'll satisfy it on every side and you get close to it. But one thing you have to accept with barter, number one, you are always going to lose some, or one party is going to lose something. It's a question of how valuable the other item is. And the second thing is, um, with with, uh, with barter, 
you can't come to barter with like a oh I, look i got a cast iron pot that i got uh 40 years ago and never cleaned up and now it's all rusted over but that doesn't have the but here give me the value of a brand new one at uh, such and such store you see people doing this kind of thing online here and there or in, in, in various like facebook marketplace or various other swap trade kind of groups they, they don't understand that what you bring to the table has to have a certain degree of value to it in order to interest the other person to make the trade so what kind of things are, are valuable and, and there's a phrase if you can't eat it or drink it or smoke it or shoot it um you know when, when everything goes down it's probably not going to be valuable so th that's <laughs> the place you can start with um don't stock up on little beanie babies or whatever it is it was the rage at one point thinking that this might actually be valuable in the future what's going to be valuable is what's going to feed people or what they can use for their defense or what kind of tools they can use for their construction and so on and so forth so if you have ammo uh, even if you have ammo for calibers of uh, firearms that you yourself don't possess, that's actually a very useful thing to have because somebody will. And so it's good to stock up, you know, just, just every once in a while, you know, you're, you're buying what you need and you see, um, I'll, I'll just throw out an example, 4570 government. I don't think I've ever owned anything uh, in 4570 government. You grab a box of that and then you do it again. And, and now you've got, you know, a bit. And then you, you when you're making trades, you say, hey, do you need any 4570 government? There's a few people around here that do. Um, and now that's one thing you can trade. And in, in terms of for meat or for dairy or for whatever. Uh, another thing is, you know, you produce chickens, you produce eggs, right? And so then see how you can best, you know, work with your land and everything that you, you require with your land to, you know, how many eggs you need for your family. And there's a lot of egg preservation tricks, by the way, that you learn as you go along. My wife learned this one that just tested out this winter. You can actually water glass eggs. And, you can, and that's something I'd never heard of before. I'm sure everyone else on this panel either heard of it or knows it or doesn't. But um, I'm, there's a lot of things I'm still new to myself. And, and it works. And it, it, it you know preserves it. So you could trade one of those. You set up a bunch of extra of those. And then, okay, well, this. And now, you know, how many dozens of eggs are in there? And, you know, you factor in, you can, you can reckon back to what the price is at the store, plus the value of whatever your feed is, and maybe it's worth a little more, uh, what the going rate is amongst other people. People will work out, you know, what the actual value is. And you might reckon it in dollars, or, you, or if, uh, you know, silver becomes a common thing to trade, you'll reckon it in silver pieces or whatever. So you can always, you know, so that's how you'll be able to make trades. You have something of value that someone else wants. So you consider, you know, the things on your land that you can produce that other people will need. <clears throat> and you know, what's growing well that I can produce double of or triple of that will store really well, either for me for a rainy day or, okay, well, we're out of meat, you know, or we're, just, we're really low on meat and I need to find a way to get meat. So and that becomes very tendacious trying to, all right, well, here's somebody with a, a whole steer. Well, that's in current money. Um, you're looking at a good 2000 bucks <clears throat> to, depending on what kind of steer, what kind of farm, you know, total between between the animal and the butchering costs, unless you're going to butcher it yourself. So that, uh, that's something else you have to factor in. It's like, okay, so what things do I have? Could I trade to even get close to that kind of value? Then it gets a little more, you know, difficult, but it could be, so you could make arrangements like, we'll provide that much worth of eggs or potatoes or vegetables for this amount of time of the year, or you've got a lot of grass, you've got a lot of hay or alfalfa or whatever it is in to be raising well how about the value of this hay in consideration for an animal right and so then you set aside 
certain amounts of hay that you're going to give to this farmer in exchange for getting meat out of it, right? And so, and there's there's innumerable other ways in which you can come up with trades between all these things. And, and most people always run to gold, silver, precious metals, and those are good too. I'm not going to knock any of those. I don't know very much about buying and trading in gold. I just know that it's it's a, it, it can't hurt you. Uh, silver uh, is more portable. Um, it's, it's not the same value of gold. It's easier to separate and uh, you know and break into more uh, usable units. So that could be you know a good part of a parallel economy. But you know if there's enough silver that people want it, because then you're going to come back to that foundational problem when everything else decays, or the technocratic system cuts you out with the central bank digital currency or whatever it happens to be. Now you're at a different stage. Now it is okay. Um, uh, why would I want silver since I can't eat it? And no one on the outside is going to take it because they want that digital stuff. It may not be a thing. And that's something you have to realize when you're, you're you know, trying to diversify what you have to trade. And I, in my own opinion is I would lean more toward, uh, you know, consumable goods. Clothing, too, if you can make clothing. Uh, that, that's another thing that a lot of people into. All of those things factor into barter. But it has let to be me, about- Let me throw one more question your way, Ryan, while you're, while you're on the screen. Uh, because it it seems to me that Michael and Fred and and William and Bug are all you know primarily one hundred percent focused on the land. You on the other hand, you have a day job, mm-hmm. so you're split, and you're doing both things. Um, I guess a very quickly, do you see yourself uh, ever uh, transitioning one hundred percent onto the land, or do you are are you going to you know keep a day job, and then and then b Describe to us the types of characteristics of professional careers that that are well suited towards, you know, how many hours in the day can I allocate towards uh, towards homesteading versus, you know, I do have to create income in this in in for for you know right. for that life. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I I also run Mediatrix Press, which is a Catholic publishing company. Um, it is more or less a one to two man operation uh, in as much as I use print on demand technology to produce my books, I stock them, I ship them, or when it gets particularly busy, I hire someone else to, to help do the shipping so that I can get back to other work like translation, which I'm also doing quite a bit of. So there's always somewhere I need to be uh, doing something. So the nature of that job is apart from when I have to get in, especially if there's priority mail and things like that, people have paid good money to get this quick. Um, I have to go in it for at least a little while and take care of all that. Um, and then I have to, you know, work in the production of new books and of translations from Latin or other things that I'm working on. So all of that has to be balanced. And then there's what's happening here. So with that, one of the big assets that you'll have is how many kids do you have? How big are they? And how much work can they legitimately take on without overbearing, without uh, oppressing them and making them lose heart? Because your kids are not your slaves. They're not your, uh, you know, they're not mules. They are your children made in God's image and likeness. And they need your attention and they need your love and they need education. But they also need to work. And and there's a, you have to be able to balance those things and not give them so much. And often what happens is there is a lot of work that needs to get done. So you need a job that's flexible in the hours. Uh, at, at, I mean, to really manage something full time at home. You've got to have a job that's flexible in its hours where if you need to stop what you're doing for three hours or four hours or not go in that day, uh, you can do it so that you can work, uh, which I actually I did that today. That's why I'm here and not in my office. 
is that um, there were a lot of things. It was a nice sunny day, nice spring day, and I had to fix. I had to rebuild gutters. I had to rebuild a gate. I had to help with general cleanup over in that. So teacher children had to do these things, especially uh, my boys are 14 and 12, and they're as, you know, almost as tall as I am at this point. So, you know, so that's a huge asset for me. And, and managing things, you have, you know, almost adult in terms of size. It's just correctly assigning them work that's not going to make them lose heart. Uh, and that, that's the big thing you want to watch out for. And then there's always jobs that everyone can take a hand in. Um, you know, my girls love going down and tending to the lambs that we just had. And that uh, it's something in bottle feeding, the, the bummers. And uh, that's, that's the ones that their mothers just, for whatever reason, decide not to feed. Um, that that's a, that's a whole different thing in sheep that you have to deal with. But the, uh, you know, it's, it's a balance and you have to have a job that has flexible hours, whether you own your own business or you have employees. So you only need to go and you know, oversee what's happening from time to time, make sure that, you know, one end is being covered and then you come back to deal with the other end. Um, make sure not too much is falling on your wife. Because your wife, especially if you have babies, you have infants, you have little kids, you get into the situation where your wife, uh, she's not really sleeping well at night, um, speaking from experience here. And then she gets up and, and everyone wants food, everyone wants cooking, everyone wants cleaning. She's got to oversee this, stop this mess, stop the baby from destroying this, stop the two-year-old from destroying this. And you can't expect her to manage everything either even though that it might be a temptation, like, well, hey, I'm working. Why aren't you getting this done? As the husband and the father, you are in charge of everything that happens in your house. And you can't blame and complain, you know, oh, my wife, she, she does wrong. You can't do that, right? You know, it's, uh, you have to take the, the whole psychology of everyone involved, what they're up against. And you have to come in and do those, uh, those types of th- in jobs. You can't just leave it on someone else to do as much as tempting as it is. Yeah, your your, your better half is also your better half is chiming in. She says that you guys have in the past bartered meat or etc. for handyman uh, to do some Mm -hmm. of the work that you don't have the skill, the tool, or or the or the experience with. I think that's plumbing, for example. Yeah, we've done it. Uh, Yeah, there are a lot of plumbing jobs that I I couldn't get uh, the sink to seal right, and it just kept leaking no matter what I did. So it's like, all right, well, I need a pro on this, and. And we got one. And then plus a whole number of other jobs that, again, are just you we, because you see the other challenge for us is we live on rented property. We don't actually own our property. Uh, yeah. So yeah. mostly because the housing values in Idaho have gone sky high. And um, I'm not sure I have to make like double my income <laughs> to afford some places that we'd like to have. So that's that's a problem. And and that, so that actually rent- brings up a topic that I wanted to kick over to William. Uh, because William has, you know, kind of a, a longer uh, history in, in large scale farming. The idea, William, of of leasing land to farm, tenant farming, um, w- w- you know, what are your thoughts on that? For like to people who are listening to this stream who may be falling into the the error and help and help them correct this error too, of like idealizing the idea of farming and saying, oh, my life will be so much more simple. No, it's a lot of work. Uh, but but let's say you let's say you're easing in and let's say you're the person who's like, OK, I've been doing gardening, like serious gardening for years. I, I even have some tools. I know I understand the seasons and the planting season and the harvesting season, et cetera. What are, what are your thoughts on on tenant farming just in general? Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm a believer in getting on land by any means necessary, including squatting. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of. Um, you know, 
uh well never mind uh <laughs> but uh uh yeah i think um i think there's nothing wrong with renting or leasing uh i think you know there are certain um things that you know are, are good ideas or, or good things to grow that don't make as much sense on a rented or leased property such as perennial plants especially longer term perennial plants like fruit and nut trees that um you know are if you're not if you're not going to be there for the long haul probably doesn't make the um sense to invest uh in you know apple trees or or i don't know uh chestnut trees or something like that uh if you don't know where you're going to be in 10 years uh when the harvest will be um although it's always good to plant trees but they are expensive and um you know it is an investment so uh, blah 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 but um as far as the, on the other hand there are certainly um lots and lots of things you can do that um are either portable uh that would be you know all forms of livestock and all the infrastructure that you need for livestock can be made to be portable um and uh as, as i'm sure people have, have seen videos of on youtube and stuff you know portable chicken coops uh, all the way up to things like portable milking parlors or just having you know selecting for um dairy animals that are, are extremely docile and can be milked without restraint um versus uh you know uh and in addition to livestock stuff you know obviously annual vegetables are, are things that where you can show up on a piece of land and if you have experience I mean, obviously, it's better to be in one place for a long time because you can really build the soil up. But it is possible to break land and, you know, grow a profitable uh, or or just, you know, um, profitable in, in more than one sense. I mean, not just in the financial sense, but in the, you know, uh, you actually got something out of your labor. You got, you, you generated some sort of surplus um, from, from just, you know, annual vegetables uh, breaking, uh, quote unquote, virgin ground. Um, so basically, uh, to, to, to answer the question, I think, um, you know, that you, you want to get on, you want to get on land, uh, and obviously everybody's situation is different. I'm very fortunate in that, uh, you know, my family had the property that I'm on now. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm extremely lucky in that way, but there, there's a ton of, uh, people in my area who, um, you know, are, are looking for people to, to farm their properties, um you know, for various, various motivations, uh, for that. But, uh, and I, you know, I hear about that in lots of different places. So you do have to, you, you may have to, you know, get out there and ask around about that, uh, in whatever area you're looking at, which can, can be, can present, uh, you know, its own challenges in terms of like, uh, you know, um, you know, becoming, becoming part of the community that you're moving to or, or, or whatever. Um, but that's definitely a thing. And the other thing is that, um, or the other thing that I would encourage people to think about is that, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to stack enterprises as, as Michael, uh, Michael Thomas, Sharon, and I think other people have alluded to on, you know, one piece of property. I mean, an obvious one is just, is just bees in like a, well, if you can find like an organic orchard that doesn't omnicidally spray its, its trees um, somewhere, you know, you could say to the, to the farmer there, can I set up bees here or can I set up, can I run like chickens in the, in the orchard or can I run chickens on a little segment of property or, or a little segment of your pasture or whatever? Um, you know, it'll be of benefit to you because they're providing fertility, et cetera. All these sorts of kind of creative ideas. Everybody here is, I think uh, everyone here seems to be very creative uh, and have, and have lots of uh, ideas of new ways of doing things. And I think that's obviously an attitude that uh, is quite, um, quite necessary to adopt uh, if you're embarking on the adventure of, 
of mm-hmm. you know trying to uh, incorporate more agricultural practices in your life uh, in whatever in whatever way you can. Um, the other thing that I would like to say is just that you know I think uh, obviously there's probably a lot of listeners out there for whom it is simply not possible to move to you know either in any situation whether it's um, yes uh, renting leasing or um, or squatting or buying. <laughs> um, you know, on a, on a rural or semi-rural piece of land. And, um, you know, there's something that, uh, the Twitter account, uh, happy, happy holistic homestead likes to say, which is that, you know, you can still homestead without really growing anything yourself. Um, at least, you know, growing anything in the ground or whatever. Um, and I really think that's true. Uh, and through, through, you know, as someone alluded to at the beginning, just relationships to farmers, and actually it's possible to do this in a rural context as well. Like you don't have to be, uh, the primary producer yourself. I think, Everyone should produce something uh, because it's just good for the soul. But um, it doesn't have to be food. Uh, it could be something else. Uh, and there's, you know, obviously an infinite number of options there. But, you know, you can, as long as you're sort of being, uh, you know, you've, you, you've got a um, discernible and uh, definable connection back to where your food is coming from via your uh, farmers and other producers, um, then, you know, you're doing what we're talking about. It doesn't. This is this is a great point. This is a great point, and I I want to I want to keep you on um, on camera, William, and bring in Mrs. C's comment. It's not only about where you're buying it, but it's about how you you can store it too. Mm-hmm. And anyone can learn to store food, to can food. And I think a lot of traditional Catholics are kind of getting into this. I know no. my family. We would love to be able to can uh everything yeah. that we could get our hands on um and and it's it's a certain skill set and, it's, and it's, it's getting harder to find the cans too uh but <laughs> yeah. uh but talk to us about food preservation for a second well yeah i mean you know the kingdom of heaven is as 11 and uh so it's very it's very christian very catholic to uh to make sourdough bread uh for example <laughs> um so you know uh there, there's you know i just think um well going, going back to what just real quick what uh uh, Michael Thomas was saying, uh, which is that, you know, there's just, uh, just in, in the gospels, we have so many agricultural, um, agricultural themes. Um, and I think it's, it's obvious that, uh, and, and not just agricultural, but, you know, gastronomic themes, uh, which he was also saying. And, um, so, so on that, on that note, um, yeah, I think that, um, there's, there's tons of awesome books and, and, you know, really, uh, obviously the way that we, we connect with our, through eating and through, uh, you know, cuisine, we connect with um, the land, we connect with farmers and, and food production in the land and thus with creation and thus with God. And so, um, and, and, and coming, you know, becoming more skilled and more able and more competent uh, in the domain of cuisine is, uh, is a good thing for everyone to do, irrespective, you know, even prior to like the motive of, you know, uh, resilience or, uh, being, I don't know, uh, you know, um, divesting oneself of the, uh, of what we've been talking about, the sort of centralized, uh, food system and economy, et cetera, that none of us want to participate in. Um, it's a good thing. Just, it's a good thing prior to, to all of those reasons. It's a good thing because it's, it's spiritually good. Um, and so, okay, to get more specific, uh, yeah, I think, you know, sourdough bread for me was, was an easy, um, on ramp. Um, and you can, um, everybody at this point, I think knows somebody who has a sourdough starter. 
Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, just making making the bread that your family eats, you know, get, covering that sort of caloric, um, that caloric foundation. So, you know, if you're, if you're in charge of uh, food production for your family, just figuring out how to make, and you have a lot of kids, uh, figuring out how to make just like a, a big old loaf of bread every morning or every couple of mornings uh, and to do it easily without really thinking, which when my family was all home during the pandemic, which we had like, I don't know, a dozen, a dozen or so people in my house with, uh, you know, all my siblings and, and some of them were married, some of them aren't. Um, so, uh, you know, I was making two loaves of bread every morning. Um, uh, and so, and I just got into uh, the habit of that where I could do it in my sleep and it really kept everybody quite content. Um, and that was nice. Uh, and, and, you know, stretching out from that, obviously that's, that's a, uh, you know, sourdough is, is fermentation. So, you know, other simple things are making sauerkraut. I also, I like to make, um, this is probably good for people with kids, uh, you know, kind of, um, like fermented soda type things. Uh, so if you just take regular, like organic fruit juice, I like to, you know, you can just do it with app with good apple juice, or, uh, I like to do it with pear juice. If you can find that, um, if you can make yourself or get some other, you know, there's lots of different ways to ferment liquids, but, um, getting yourself a, uh, or making yourself a ginger bug, which is something that I've done, uh, which you can, which you can look into is a great way to, to make kind of naturally fermented and carbonated sodas, which, uh, kids will love. And I personally, cause I have a huge sweet tooth, uh, enjoy drinking. Uh, and they're obviously, you know, probiotic and healthy, unlike, uh, actual, unlike, you know, store-bought sodas or whatever. Um, and then, you know, um, one other thing else, you know, well, uh, just just um, a, a sort of more general comment that's coming to mind is that, uh, you know, there's there's a you know, we sort of in terms of culinary literacy, we live in a in a kind of in a culture or a um, culture that's obsessed with like the recipe as kind of the primary vehicle of mm -hmm. of of culinary literacy rather than the, the appropriate or proper vehicle, which to <clears throat> me is technique or skill. Um, and so if you can, if you can sort of, I think that, you know, when you think about maybe someone older in your life, a grandmother or, um, or something like that, who has, who really has like kind of just that, like, un, you know, sort of, um, incredible, uh, ability just to whip things up, uh, at, at sort of the drop of a hat and it'd be always yeah. and for it always to be delicious, which everybody, uh, <laughs> which is the, you know, the sort of tea loss of everyone's, uh, kitchen activity, um, <laughs> or kitchen experience, uh, I think that is that that sort of prowess comes from a, a honing of technique rather than like a memorization of recipes. Yes. Um, and so, yes. it's, you know, for for actually a resource for for Catholics is um, is a farmstead meatsmith, um, which is a really great uh, kind of farmstead homestead butchery focused on kind of meat preservation, making charcuterie and and home butchery and stuff like that. And they also happen to be traditional Catholics. Um, uh, which is which is great, and they have a podcast uh, that where they they talk about you know the sort of kind of theology of all this, which is really cool. Um, from, that's Farmstead Meatsmith. But one of the things that they talk about is you know dividing, and I'm getting a lot of this sort of technique rhetoric from them. Uh, dividing you know in terms of at least meat cookery uh, into three categories, which is braising, pan frying, and roasting. And so if you can master each one of those three things you can really just do anything uh, you can, you can, you know, in terms of cooking meat, um, obviously there's some, there's some like uh, exceptions to that rule, but in general, that's true. And you can, you can do the same thing with, with all forms of food, with vegetables and mushrooms and fruits and everything else. So uh, baking. So, um, 
Well, yeah, I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying is is we all need to have an abuela. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. We need, uh, a, we need a grandmother in our life. And this leads me to a question for Fred, actually, as you reflect on what William said, you know, William is the beneficiary of the of the of the works and and the labors of of the generation that came before mm-hmm. him. As you put your hundred year hat on, Fred, for your family <laughs> and your children, and you think, how am I going to make sure that for a hundred years or for a thousand years my children are Catholic, and what can I bequeath to them and their patrimony? Uh, you know, uh, ta- react to w- William's head start on all of us with respect to uh, you know th- this this process of deurbanizing, hmm. um, as well as you know, sort of the concept of. Of 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 the family patrimony and you know and and everything that he said. Well, we made sure what my kids were grown up Catholic, my own kids, and we do the same thing with my grandchildren. Take them to tra- traditional Latin mass. So, and my wife, my wife has been a, a Catholic school teacher all her life, so she's great at that at instilling the Catholic faith within. Our own family and within all the people and students that she's been involved with. Um, so we have that, but also, like I said, we wanted to find this community, which we have. Um, like I said, last year, there was only a thought, and here it is. We're, we're living it right now, and Mike is part of that. And uh, as far as um, the practicality of, of canning and things like that, Within our community up here, we do have people that are experienced in canning. So we will be, my wife and I, and I know Mike and his wife will be learning that skill this year. Uh, So we will have all our produce canned. And what I have here on, on my land, I have food, I have water, and I have heat. I have everything essential that I need. Now, when I was back in New Jersey, I I was relying on on the government, on the state, on the city, you know, and I, I don't like that. I like to be um, self-sufficient. And up here, I really am because I have all the essentials. And if it hits the fan, I'm, I'm okay. I have no problem. And that's what I felt a couple of years ago, even before the pandemic back, back in Jersey, that the way the world is going, the way the church is going, I mean, it's kind of sounds like we're prophetic times. And I always come back to Catholicism because that's what I'm about. Um, and so I I had my own chapel at, at, at that point back there. And I, in the process of reinstalling that here on my farm, um, I have a house here. I have 15 rooms, which uh, I'm in the process of renovating. And I'm going to have a lot of people here. And I have I have room for people that, you know, maybe in dire circumstances. So I have a place for people now. I have for a place for people in the future. I have place for people to worship. I I like I said I have my own source of water, um, food, and it's it's everything that I think is needed within a traditional Catholic community. And like you know I said, my and Mike knows this too. He can verify this is our, our community up here is growing there, I mean <laughs> last year I couldn't even conceive of this but 
the traditional Catholic community we have, it's growing. And we, we have people that, uh, they just recently bought a 90-acre farm. And we're going to help them set that up. Um, and there's, uh, on Twitter, I have a lot of people always asking about moving up here and how do we do this. And Mike can attest to this too, because he's always inundated with, with questions about how to live up here and what to do. And all I could say is that, again, if, if I could do it, anybody could do it. Okay. I lived in Jersey. Again, the market right now, the real estate market is crazy. You could, you could sell, you can name your price and you could sell what you have. And I, I came up here and I bought low. Okay. Yes. I'm re, redoing the house myself because I have the skills, but that's fine. But you can do it. You know, it's not say, oh, I, you know, that, that's just a dream. I can't, I can't afford that. I can't do this. I, I, there's so much, uh, people are so defeatist at, at sometimes they're their own worst enemy. You just have to be open, you know, and if God wants you to do this, if you have an, an idea or inkling to do this, then, then just go with it. You know, just, you know what? God is more powerful than us. And if he, he showed me a way to come up here and I, I just followed him. You yeah. Know? And the, and the yeah. same thing to people out there and you just follow what God's lead. I want to, I want to do a quick plug uh, for, again, this, this is a great starter book. The church and the land is by father Vincent McNabb. One of the things he does is he breaks down the Catholic land movement into, you know, sort of like the seven foundational principles to worship God, to follow Christ uh, to love your family, to uh, a love of chastity, a love of justice, a love of liberty, a love of, and finally a love of fatherland. I think liberals today, liberals today are going to hate Father McNam. Uh, they're <laughs> going to hate what he stands for. They're going to hate the things that he uh, that he writes. Michael, uh, he challenges liberalism in general. He challenges city life. He he almost condemns it. Um, and and I would say. Given the fact that we're, I, I think, uh, living in a bloodless global communist revolution, uh, one of the tenets of communism is that you'll own nothing and be happy. There's no such thing as private property. Father McNabb is a huge proponent, Michael, of private property. You can't homestead if you don't own the land. Distributism doesn't work if you can't own assets. Um, so, Michael, uh, Bring us up to date. Tell us a little bit about your McNabb experience. And if you want to bring in Father Fahey and, and, and any of the others, feel free to do that. But, uh, but I think folks here, I, I, want, I want folks who are listening to the stream to walk away from the stream with at, with at least an inkling of the philosophical principles uh, behind this movement. It's not just, I want to eat organically and I don't like smog or traffic or that kind of, it's, it, there's, there's something more to it that is, that is intrinsically Catholic and intrinsically, I think, human. And you're muted still, Michael. <laughs> yes. I want to back up. There's two points that I want to just back up to real quick that have, that have, we've passed over. And then I will, I, I, I can do the distributist theoretical thing uh, succinctly um, and, and deliver, I think, meaningful content. So, but, but I do want to back up. One point that I want to back up on is that I work full time, 10 hours a day off my farm to pay the bills. Um, I'm not living like some homestead ideal where I'm on farm and I'm trust funded or everything's paid off or anything else. I, I, I suffer under the burden of, of 
the usury system and and the you know debt system of modernity and i um i uh we're gonna get there christopher we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna carry each <laughs> other brother um uh but um but uh so so i just want folks to know that i don't want to create a false ideal about who i am um i work 10 hours a day i don't own a company um i don't define my own hours i work for somebody else I go to a millstone and I put my shoulder at it. I work with a team. I do my part in humility and I accept what's given to me and I do my best. Um, I don't make a ton of money, but God provides. Um, so I just want to put that out there that I'm a working Joe, like a lot of people who might be listening to this. Second, um, uh, the domestic restoration, if we're to follow a principle of subsidiarity and, and the Catholic land movement is truly uh, reactionary against uh, modernity, technocracy, industrialism, all these various things that have torn apart the fabric of, of natural order, um, then a restoration of the home and domestic production, when I say domestic, I mean the, the domestic in the home, but also maybe even nationalistic type of domestic production. Um, Father McNabb says the family is the... Um, is the smallest unit of the nation. And he also says that the best defense of, what is it? I forget the best, the, the best defense of the home is the homestead. I forget that quote, but in any event, I'm not, the, 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 the point that I want to make, um, people might be familiar with the Catholic intellectual, um, uh, um, writes a brilliant essay about, uh, about the household and the restoration of the household and the restoration of, of domestic production and how that is intrinsically tied to the restoration of our families. So the restoration of our families is not just establishing the, the, the reestablishment of patriarchal order and, and, and the, 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 the rightful hierarchy and, and, and the divinely ordered hierarchy of the family. It is also the restoration of domestic production, that, that, that if we are to take things uh, the, the industrial era and the modern era apart that we need to produce things in our family. And to do that, our families need to be operating at like a certain degree of, of health and have a certain degree of like domestic production. And that speaks to the canning, the sourdough and all the things that William was talking about. Um, and really what the Catholic land movement is about. It's not just about getting back to the soil. It's also about the restoration of the health and the structure of the family. So we can be a, 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 a productive a unit of society um, and 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 produce things in the home again, and uh, with that, offer a counter to industrial production. Um, and that really just starts with like our own individual choices. Um, so, thanks, Jenny. Um, so, uh, I just want to make that point that that's that's another huge part of uh, of what you know the restoration of the family and the restoration of the household is a huge part of what the um, Catholic land movement is. So, Mike, to your question about distributism, thank you for listening, you know, for bearing with me while I covered those two topics. But to your question about distributism and the more theoretical, I think everybody um, sh should really read Pope Leo XIII's encyclical. Um, here, help me out with the pronunciation. Can someone help me out? Uh, you talk about Rerum Novarum. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I always mess up that pronunciation, and I, you saved me from being a fool there. So, so, uh, but, uh, but that it's 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 beautiful. It speaks to a lot of, it speaks to a lot of the, uh, uh, what we're talking about here, and it's really, it's really where Belloc and Chesterton and Father McNabb pull all their ideas from. So, if, so if we're to go back to the theoretical ground, it's that encyclical. Um, that that generates the, the the theoretical ground from which uh, 
distributism arises from. And so um, my quick rhetoric for what distributism is, because I promised a definition, um, uh, Belloc covers it in one sentence, it's the restoration of property. But, but, to, but to get deeper in that, um, distributism is all, often understood as a third way. Um, we can use a lot of rhetorical tools to like contextualize what that third way looks like. I love Father Vincent McNabb's first things or, or primary things. Um, and I can get into that, but I'm going to set that aside for a minute. I'm going to address the, the, main, the main rhetorical point in understanding it as a third way. So here we go. Um, uh, capitalism assumes that goodness arises from the free movement of capital. If we take away the restrictions of capital and allow it to move resources and capital without restriction between people, that will, um, and between institutions, that, that, that from that free movement of capital, we will uh, uh, cultivate innovation and that innovation will provide goodness for all people. Communism, the other side of the spectrum, is the destruction of public property, the melting of public uh, private property, rather the, the destruction of private property, uh, the, the, the nationalizing of industries. And the idea that the common good comes from a well-planned state, a well-planned state can can right, provide the good for all for all the people. If, if we, we plan society um, uh, through state agency and the abolition of private property, we can make sure that resources are allocated freely to those who need it from those who produce it. I, I think they, they have a phrase there from each, uh, each to their ability to each for their needs or whatever, but, but, but that, but that is, is mitigated by state apparatus with yeah. the destruction of private property. Distributism is saying that the, the common good arises from well-distributed property. It's not speaking to the free movement of capital. It's saying the number one concern from a, from a, for a society is to make sure that uh, property and the means of production are well-distributed amongst the society so everyone can provide for their needs. Mm -hmm. I'm very, being very, very theoretical in general here for those who can bear with me. But that's the third way a succinct way of understanding distributism. It's where the name comes from, distributism. Well-distributed property, again, is the means through which, and, and well-distributed means of production is the means through which goodness arises. All right, so in order to kind of parse, parse this out, you have to kind of, we're going to backtrack now and just talk briefly about capitalism. The free movement of capital, all, this is the relationship between capitalism and communism. The, the free movement of capital always results, the natural uh, state of capital is that when it moves around freely, it consolidates, monopolies are created, and then the state needs to intervene to break up the monopolies. That state increasingly gains more power, and then eventually communism is created. Marx and the other communist thinkers understood communism as the natural evolution of the capitalist system. That, that was what they were depending on, and in many ways, they're not necessarily wrong. Um, when, when you, you have the, the, the continued inter and that's what we're living in right now. Mike, you identified right now. I'd agree with you. We live in a communist society. This is communism. What we're living in is communism. Um, you know, I, I pay close to 50% in taxes 
every industry is highly regulated by state apparatus, uh, false idols like egalitarianism and and uh, and equality are constantly shoved down my throat. And, and you don't and you don't truly own your land. If you miss one tax payment, the government owns it. You got it. You got it. So, so distributism would be. Uh, so a distributive system would say goodness does not arise from the free movement of capital because that creates the cyclical relationship with government regulation and consolidation. And, and, and uh, it doesn't, uh, uh, goodness does not come from state agency and the destruction of private property. It's actually increasing the rights to private property. Here we go with Belloc's restoration of property. That, that, that is where goodness comes from. And so how do we cultivate that? Well, the way we cultivate that is to um, is to bring people in close proximity to the means of production which are giving them substance, which is where the homestead comes in. It's like the natural distributed state. The natural distributed state is like every little community having the mean pro- uh, means of production within their <laughs> grasp to provide for themselves. It's not the secondary wage to buy the primary thing. It's actually it's like teaching a man to fish. It's like it's bringing people within a proximity to the first things that, that, that they can uh, pr- provide their, their, the, the, the means for their sustenance and the sustenance of their community. Let me just, let me just supplement what you're saying with a quote from a direct quote from Rerum Navarum. A further consequence will result in the greater abundance of the fruits of the earth. Men always work harder on what belongs to them. Hmm. They, they learn to love the very soil that yields in response to the labor of their hands, not only food to eat, but an abundance of good things for themselves and those that are dear to them. That such a spirit of willing labor would add to the produce of the earth and of the wealth of the community is self-evident. What you're saying is people take care of things when they own them. Hmm. Mike, can I, can I jump in real quick? I want, I want to, I want to connect something that Michael's been talking about, and then this quote that you just had from uh, from Ram Navarm. That there's this idea, right? That basically, what's wrong with our society, if you really look at it, is we've been, and we've all talked about it in various ways uh, throughout this whole conversation. We've been ripped away from reality, right? The reality of our existence. We've been slowly separated further and further and further away from it. Um, and this isn't the first time that's happened, by the way. I mean, this happened when, uh, you know, the Protestant revolt, right? There was the redistribution of wealth immediately from all the Catholic lands stolen in England. Um, and so we've seen this cycle happen again and again. Um, here's something I realized, though. So as distributists, you know, you guys obviously know the, the term uh, subsidiarity. It's a it's an integral part of Catholic economics and Catholic social teaching. There's something really cool that happens when you're a farmer. That happens when you're imminently connected to your the means of your 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 food production uh, and your livelihood, right? The, and this is what happens. Subsidiarity, we all know, is is you know allowing that which is at the lowest level to take care of itself. That's the simplistic definition. But also, as as the authority, um, you intervene when necessary, right? You watch. Observation is crucial for subsidiarity. And this is something that a lot of people that are, you know, sort of cut and dry with their definitions forget. Um, and uh, um, Ryan was talking about this beautifully earlier, how the, the, the man of the home, right, the, the patriarch of his family, uh, he is ultimately responsible for every last thing in the family, right? And so he watches his wife. He has to know what's good for her. 
the whole psychology, right? He has to know who she is as a person and he has to intervene and he has to help and guide and step in when needed, even if it's technically, you know, her duty or whatever. And the same thing with the children. Here's the cool thing. We all have this image of the old farmer, right? That slow old man with the narrowed eyes who looks like he's been, you know, staring at beauty his whole life. Um, we, we don't picture, let's call it the modern uh, Americanist farmer, right? The, the, the kind of fast pace, get it done, get out there, get the machines running. We don't picture that. We picture this old guy leaning on a stick, chewing on a piece of grass. That became a trope in our society. Right. It became a joke, that image. Right. You, you might, maybe you'll see it on The Simpsons and he's an he's an idiot. But before that, we had this image of this this beautiful old man with, with wisdom in his eyes. When I first started this whole thing and I got out there and I had the animals, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about the chickens other than abstractions that I had read, read about and watched videos on. Same with the cows and everything else. I realized there's a certain subsidiarity in the land. Right. Watching the land sitting and watching my chickens for an hour and a half as I put them to bed, watching how they, how they interact with each other, watching them throughout the day as I'm building the things that need to be built on my farm and seeing how the chickens are moving uh, and they've split into sort of two little herds, right? And they're, they're yeah. functioning in certain ways, watching the cows from day to day yeah. and seeing, because you can learn a million things from, you know, from books, all these abstract things, but my cows do things a certain way. And learning that and learning that there was a time that I needed to get in there and sleep with them through the night because I had one mother that was sending one of the cows out into the cold to freeze to death. Right. And I she, ha I she didn't have a bull. Right? I have to read you this quote from Father McNabb and I'll throw it back to you, Bug. This is under his his third motive for the return to land movement, which is which he calls family love. And it says, quote, one of the most explicit motives of those who are turning their faces towards the land is the desire to restore the Catholic family. Yep. Most of the older men and women who can themselves remember parents and grandparents, again, so this is 100 years ago, so now we're talking about great-great-grandparents, know that the modern arrangement of the world has put an end to the historical institution called HOME, all capitals. Many of the younger men and women too realize, as if by institution, that a state of things that makes race suicide seem to be the only practical policy is uh, is is a state of chaos, if indeed it can be called a state at all. Bug, the, the question that I was going to throw to you that you've already jumped in on and honed in on, but I want to crystallize it a little bit. What Michael was describing when he was talking about communism versus capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things, you know, the, the, the idea that I believe we've had a 700-year war on reality. And that war on reality has manifested itself most especially, I love to pick on Germans, but today I'm going to pick on the Anglos. The Anglos gave us Newtonian physics. They gave us Adam Smith economics. And they gave us uh, Darwinian biology. And all three of those things are, 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 war, are, are waging war on reality. No. And when you look at Adam Smith, and, and, I, and I want to throw this your way. Adam Smith proposes more or less what Michael was saying, and Ryan, you're next on this, that out of chaos you can get order. Mm -hmm. That And it's the same thing that Darwin says. Out of decay, disorder, and corruption, you get order. Yep. Um, 
this is the antithesis of truth. You can never get order out of disorder. You can never get order out of decay, death, struggle for survival. That's what capitalism is. And communism is 100. And this is what Marx was right about, that communism is the logical conclusion of, of capitalism. And yeah. so anytime that we say I'm an anti-communist and I hate the communists and all this stuff, you have to hate. That's just a symptom of, of the root problem, which is liberalism generally defined. Yeah. So I think there's two, there's two things going on here, right? Um, the idea that separating us from reality, it begins with that lowest level of subsidiarity, right? Just the simple interactions. And Michael spoke to this so beautifully when he was talking about the seasons and the interactions with the seasons, living seasonally, right? Eating what's in season, you know, canning what you can. But that idea of, of watching, that slow patience of, of simply seeing how reality functions, it actually forms the mind, right? And this is crucial. It forms, it forms our ability to reason. You know, A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. That simple, that simple functionality of the mind, the more we're disconnected from reality, the less it functions and the more the error can be rammed in. And you talk about, um, you know, order from chaos. Again, Michael was talking about peace uh, on the farm and, and the peace that comes about uh, through, through that seasonal living and that, that connection to reality. St. Thomas Aquinas is my favorite definition. So the priest that converted me, uh, he's an exorcist, he's a Thomas. He loves definitions. You know, like he's, you know, he's like, just learn definitions. Uh, and it's so helpful. It's so formative. My all-time favorite definition is the definition of peace. It's just the tranquility of order, right? Um, like that, we, it, we talk about peace in the world. But peace in the world is going to come through this tranquility of order. So now to get to your question about capitalism, Mike, um, me and you have talked a lot about this. I obsess about economics. I love economics. It's been a passion of mine for 10 years uh, plus now. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's about who who owns what, right? And this is the key thing. Um, we've talked about corporations. We've talked about how as that capital um, because you don't obviously you're not going to get order from chaos, right? So as that capital moves, it consolidates, and there's various applications that we see throughout time of what happens when that capital consolidates. It's always really horrible to everybody, um, except for a very small number of people. We got a really interesting function of it in this current order, which is the idea of corporations getting legal personhood, right? Uh, now we can't give the unborn legal personhood. Um, but we can give these abstractions, this idea of, of a company, whatever that means, right? This abstract entity has legal personhood. They pay taxes um, as a person. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, other than voting, which, you know, with, with their money, they do essentially, but they, they are, um, they are essentially the, uh, the government function at this point. And the reason for that is because as they consolidated, they used language kind of buried in the Constitution, especially language that was added after the Civil War. And they sort of drove this idea that that corporations should get legal personhood. This is the strangest version of capitalism that that I've seen historically. And we see capitalism all throughout history. Now, because communism is a direct response to capitalism. We are going to get the absolute worst and strangest version of communism. Uh, as it engulfs uh, this new strange beast 
that we have here in America, um, which, which, yes, as Mike pointed out, um, does kind of come out of the English, uh, you know, the, the English intelligentsia yeah. um, since the Protestant revolt. Yeah. Now let me um, let me crystallize the question even further for for Ryan, and I, I don't think anyone has time to read this book, but it was a it was a bestseller, and it's called Capital by Thomas uh, Piketty. And I, I will I will how many pages is this book, Ryan? It's eight hundred pages. I can summarize it to you in two sentences, and I think you can react to these two sentences. I have observed. I observed it when I worked on Wall Street, when I worked in mergers, acquisitions, and private equity. I have observed that, that the haves have access to deal flow and to investment opportunities that the have-nots do not have access to. And therefore, the growth rate of the haves is higher than the growth rate of the have-nots. I have personally been involved in these deals. I've done $4 billion in transactions in my life. Uh, or been a part of it or or witnessed it. And so my personal observations, Ryan, are that you and I are not going to have access to the investment opportunities, the deals that the, that the privileged have access to. And as a result, the consolidation of wealth, power, prestige, control will continue until government breaks it. And that is the cycle of human history under a regime of liberalism. The land movement is a reaction to that. The land movement is a, re- is a rejection of that. It, and it may in some ways be the only, um, the only antidote to it. What do you think? I think so, especially uh, if you're going to depend on government to break it, um, you're going to be waiting for a very long time because government is ultimately becomes the servant of capital because the state interests take over in a system we call regulatory capture. And I, I described it a little bit with the, um, with the USDA and the meat uh, function, but not, not really, but, but what it com- basically happens is this. Oh, government, 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 look, look, there's this big old monopoly is squelching out competition. Government, oh, well, we should write some kind of regulation to make sure that can't happen. The monopoly comes over. Well, our lobbyists will donate, uh, you know, X amount of money that we're legally allowed to donate to your campaigns and to your funds. And to, it will make sure these things happen. Hey, you might even get a spot in our board when you retire from Congress or, or whatever government agency you're running. So let, you know, let us, our lobbyists help you draft that legislation. And then they do. And then they put it out there and it helps absolutely nobody except for the 1%, except for the haves. Uh, That's why every farm bill that comes out makes the plight of farmers even worse who are depending on the system and centralized in the system because the farm bill is not meant to help mid-size farmers. It's meant to help the, you know, the Archer Daniels Midland and the Monsanto and the Bayer Santo, whatever it is now. Um, You know, that's what the farm bills are meant to help. They're meant to create a dependence on these things that are bad for the land, industrial pesticides, all these nitrates and industrial fertilizers, um it's meant to keep you locked in that system always chasing the rat Uh, like the rat always running the wheel always chasing around but never getting to where you're trying to get and that's the same thing in every industry where government comes in to regulate it's really capital that the haves that determine 
how that industry is going to be regulated. So there's very little to, to gain by you know saying, okay, well, all we need to do is wait for the government to fix this because it's always going to become worse because uh, regulatory capture has in fact happened and it's not going away. So what can you do to oppose a system like that? Essentially, the only thing you do is get out of the system. And that's what, in my opinion, anyway, my reading of McNabb and others, the Catholic land movement tries to do. And so with that, it's like, well, how can we do that then? Because, I mean, banks aren't exactly going to be happy to make us loans for this and that sort of thing. What, what How do we make these things work? So there's several different ways in which uh, this can happen. One is understanding the basic principles of, you know, Catholic economic justice as it's laid out in Rerum Navarum and in Quadragesima Anno of Pius XI, uh, Laborum Exercens of John Paul II, and so on and so forth. And, and essentially that there's pillars of economic justice that one, we got to observe, and two, that we got to help other people understand so we can help create. One's participative justice. Every person has an equal right and opportunity to contribute as needed to economic production through his or her you know, labor and capital. Distributive justice, that every person has the equal right and opportunity to receive his or her proportionate share of the economic rewards and incomes that are distributed, created, et cetera. Based on, this is the important part, some distributors miss this, based on that person's market valued contribution of labor or capital. In other words, uh, you know, the, the true Catholic interactions with, with the economy are a two-way street. So you have to consider one, the work that needs to be done, the nature of the work, the, the needs of the employee in the means of the employer. They are a two-way street. So you can't demand more from the employer than it's gotten. You see all these people that are saying, hey, we embrace Catholic social teaching and we want free health care and all these yeah, things yeah. that are expensive. No Catholic small business could possibly provide that. And I want to underscore this point, Ryan. You have just taken down the most common critique of of, of Catholic economics, which is that it's just it's really just <laughs> socialism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is what this is what people fundamentally misunderstand. They say that well, distributism. The only way to make distributism work is to basically have the government seize all the assets and then equally divide it up uh, amongst people. That's what people think. That's what they say, Ryan. Right, and that's precisely what it isn't. Chesterton, yeah. Chesterton actually makes a great commentary on – he's talking about guilds, right? And, and I think if you just look at these two uh, examples, the modern guild versus what Chesterton talks about, and he's talking about how bad the guilds were in his day. Right, how they had already become these socialist uh, uh, encampments of rot, and he's talking about the old Catholic guilds, and he's talking about how the old Catholic guild was defending, um, was defending an industry, right, defending a a a, a livelihood for the good of all, yeah. and so you weren't allowed, you know, if you look at modern guilds now, they're they'll they're grabbing whatever they can and distributing them out, you know, very little actually, but. That's their goal, at least their claimed goal. Chesterton talks about how if you lost your means of, of labor, right? You, you had a fire and it burned down your company. You lost your tools of your trade, whatever the case may be. The guild's job, the guild's goal was to try and reestablish your livelihood for you, right? But at the same time, if you were in a certain livelihood and you were charging X amount, even if you were in an area where you could get away with it all day, you're in an area where there were tons of wealthy people and whatever, but you were charging it 
something that just was morally unfair, objectively morally unfair. The guild would step in and say, why are you charging that? That's not that's not a fair price for this thing. And even though you can get away with that probably for the rest of your life, we're not going to let you because our job is to guard the good of this livelihood, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. for the good of all. And in general, uh, and, and, the, and frankly the speaking, goods, so as the price of goods will find their value in a truly just market. And it, when I say that, it, does, it doesn't mean it just magically happens. It's rather in the reckoning of men as they trade and carry on. They know the value of these things. The, the nature of what that's worth will be sensible and discernible. And if someone's going way out of uh, town, but he's trying to use some natural monopoly of, of some sort on the thing, that's when the guilds step in. And guilds are so important because they are. Uh, today we could call them an occupational group, if you will, right. and they are a, 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 another governmental type of structure, but one rooted in the participation of the people who actually do those jobs. It's not some union bureaucrat somewhere that uh, got elected and now he's sitting on some nice salary and a pension to sit down and do negotiations and get you like a five cent increase uh, once every 10 years or something like that. These Which are, has nothing to do with you as an individual. Right. And that's no, the key thing. Is, and it's it's a it's a sad happenstance that classical guilds, right, Catholic guilds share the name guild at all with with, with the modern application of it, because they're two right. completely functional different things. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it was about the individuals involved. Uh, it was about guarding the the that livelihood, guarding that industry or that trade, whatever it was, guarding it for the individuals involved. And then actively on an individual circumstantial level, helping the individuals as a brotherhood, right? And um, Michael, wildly uh, different than, than guilds today. Michael Thomas of Sharon, price gouging or taking advantage of some momentary or temporary market um, uh, characteristic or taking advantage of the need of people is actually te- definitionally it's a form of usury. Um, because usury is not just defined as charging interest on money. It's, it's fundamentally, uh, concerned with the, with the buying and selling of wares as well. So, uh, this is, uh, a, a properly functioning Michael, uh, s- system of Catholic guilds is a check against the, uh, fallen human nature inclination towards usury. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to uh, point out just on on because the distributor side of things, I, I I don't know necessarily that much about guilds, but people often ask me with the distributors thing because I, I I do I do stoop for it quite a bit, and um, uh, pe- people do ask me, uh, you know, what is a practical piece of policy? What would distributors policy look like? Um, and so I always like to talk about um, about how distributist policy is not the is often not the addition of of regulation on a given market but it is the reduction of regulation on a given market and i'll give an example um if if i'm a cider maker right now i have to meet the same regulatory requirements as a budweiser factory in order to produce the small amount of cider i'd like to share with my little locality there's no gradation of regulation or tax burden between me and a giant Budweiser plant. In <laughs> fact, the large-scale Budweiser plant, in the effort to move capital and create capital, is often deregulated further 
than the small producer like myself would be. They're tax incentivized, they're given all types of government grants and other things that that aren't, that my little farm doesn't get. Tax abatements. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. precisely. So uh, again, distributist policy would use as its guiding light or as its orientation, what policy creates the most well-distributed property and means of production? And part of retaining property and retaining means of production is having market access. And so, you know, in order to make a profit or, or, or engage with a market. So um, the, uh, in order to pre- preserve traditional systems of agriculture and culinary production and other things that would otherwise be regulated out of existence with modern regulations, um, Europe has really interesting answers that actually fit a distributist model. And so in Europe, they have uh, something for small rural producers called threshold taxes or thresh- threshold regulations, <clears throat> being that until I meet a certain level of production at different levels of production, different regulations and tax burdens are incurred by the producer, therefore giving smaller players an easier access to the market. And it could be argued across the line logically that like if I'm if I'm only producing 100 gallons or 300 gallons of cider each year, well, I'm not really threatening the health of anybody by doing that, right? And if I am, it's a very, very small body of people who are ever going to ingest my cider, right? It's not like I'm going to hurt a, a massive amount of people. Um, and and so uh, threshold taxes and, and would be a means to give access to smaller producers, giving them the means to retain their property. And when we talk about Right. So, so now I, I can pay for my farm in part because I can access a market with no tax burden or no regulation because I'm only producing like under a threshold. We don't have this system in America and it's much to our detriment and much to it, it is the res, it, it results in the consolidation of agriculture that we've seen. If we had threshold taxes and regulations across the board for many different realms of agricultural production everywhere from from meat production to uh, alcohol production to vegetable production, you know, if, if we deregulated the lowest threshold of production, all of a sudden, me as a small producer, am incentivized to operate many different, a, a, a multifunctional farm, a myriad of small scale agriculture that's all interacting with it. So all of a sudden, I've incentivized diverse small scale agriculture, because I'm motivated to operate just below threshold on all these different things. So I can so have a couple of that's so crucial, right? What you just said is so crucial. The idea of of having these robust systems of agriculture that are all functioning together, right? I mean, we all, you know, we all know that on, on this this uh, conversation here is that for on a small scale farming, right? You want these robust biological systems where everything's working together. My chickens are doing a ton of work. You know, my cows are doing their work. Everyone's working together. Uh, and you're building the soil ultimately, and you're contributing to the health of the land that God gave you, right? As as uh, the authority over that land, having dominion over it, the idea of enriching it while taking from it, it's, it's, that's the beauty of subsidiarity, right? But I want to touch on this regulation idea you were talking about. So in my study on cattle and beef production and trying to go down that rabbit hole, I found that one of the big problems with cattle production here in America is we, we created because of regulation and because of a consolidation of, of capital, 
we created this tiny, tiny little bottleneck of slaughterhouses, right? And that bottleneck dictates everything. That bottleneck determined how all cattle was going to be raised here in the United States, essentially, because the competition was so steep to filter through that bottleneck. So yes. now all of a sudden, you create these horrific situations where, I mean, they're basically just making you know sludge out of these animals that's i i accidentally went and looked at one because i didn't really check much and i was looking for cows and it was a horror show i ended up on one of these like massive beef production properties um and it was something out of like leatherface right yeah yeah uh, no okay this that consolidation of power it's exactly what michael's talking about that consolidation of power created that slaughterhouse bottleneck that determined everything below it and and it's not only in in the this industry that the bottlenecks define the, the create the standardization of the product. Look at public education. Look at the textbooks that children use. The textbooks are defined by basically what New York, California, and Texas will buy. Those three states, what textbooks those states buy is what defines what the what the public curriculum is. For all children across the land, from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea. Um, so wherever the bottleneck is, and we're feeling the bottleneck too, uh, Fred, in in this you know in this so-called uh, supply chain problems that we're all having. We're now seeing the weaknesses in just-in-time inventory. We're now seeing the weaknesses in uh, you know Japanese-style lean manufacturing, low inventory. Uh, high high uh, working capital ratios, really good things that you can tell investors in terms of how productive we are. But what we're what we're witnessing with these bottlenecks is that when one bottleneck breaks, like with toilet paper, um, it affects a lot of people. Absolutely, I mean it's it's a system of our of our own demise. I mean. Uh, Weak link. Um, we're all suffering from that now, and it's. I think it's only going to get worse. I hate to be a doom. Um, that's why I tried to get out of the situation I was in, and I think yeah. a lot of people are looking. And that's what I think this capital land movement is all about, to go back to the theme. I want to I want to get your thoughts uh, while we have you, Fred, because this is the this is the plane that I wanted to land on. This is the final topic uh, that I wanted to discuss tonight, and I think probably the the uh, the five or six of us should get together more regularly because this, is, this has been a fantastic discussion and we've only scratched the surface, but um, the sacraments and I want to go all the way around and I'll go to William next right after you, Fred. If we're, if we're living this, this uh, Catholic land movement life, it may take us out of the urban cores. It may take us far out of the urban cores where the fraternity isn't, gonna find us or the society isn't gonna find us getting the sacraments and living a sacramental life has that been a challenge for you no not yet not yet no 
but um, I was prepared and I am prepared. I hate to say this, but to go underground. Um, stop giving out the sacraments. This was at the start of the pandemic when everything was when the bishops decided to shut everything down ahead of the state mandate. So there will be certainly a remnant. There will be I think a lot of people no no disorder. They'll just go along with it. They'll just roll over like they did with with It's it's a terrible thing to witness, but there will be meeting our needs, and there will be communities thriving, no matter what comes. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. I uh, we're having a little bit of audio issue with you, Fred, but I caught most of what you said, and I and I think I I, I think I agree with it, uh, William. Um, I want to bring you in on this discussion as well, being. Uh, Probably, perhaps the newest Catholic amongst this discussion. Anyway, uh, your thoughts on living a sacramental life as a traditional Roman Catholic out on the land? Yeah, um, I, I personally haven't had uh, issues with with access to the sacraments. Um, I live uh, within a reasonable distance of a of an FS, uh, FSSP parish, um, which I attend. So uh, for me, it hasn't been a problem. Um, uh, yeah, and I think you know most people who are um, who are what would you say uh, committed to this type of lifestyle and who are uh, you know eager to to pursue it are willing to make that longer trip. And I think you know um, in terms of you know uh, scenarios for further in the future where we might not know what's going to happen. Um, yeah, as, as has been a recurrent theme throughout this conversation we just have to trust in god and uh in in providence i think um you know that's that's the only um i, I you know it sounds like <laughs> uh fred has has further you know has, has a more sophisticated contingency plan than i do maybe but um i think uh i think as long as i think you know the, those those priests if as long as we can find uh trustworthy holy priests uh you know, within, within a, a reasonable distance from us that we can, that we can get to easily. Um, then I, I, I think, you know, that's, that's the most we can, we can do just, uh, in terms of preparation, um, mm. on that front. So, um, that's, you know, obviously it's, it's difficult as it is, uh, even if you're not trying to homestead with, um, in certain locations with having access to, to, uh, traditional sacraments, but, um, yeah, you know, um, so I, I, I think, uh, but yeah, I, I certainly, you know, I don't, I think that people who, who put that, as we've been talking about at the center of their lives and, uh, for whom, uh, particularly the blessed sacrament is, is a priority, um, you know, then, then you act accordingly. And if you have to drive two, three hours <laughs> to get to mass, um, then so be it. Right. William, while, while I have you, I want to, I want to ask you for your closing thoughts to folks who want to start. Uh, the transition towards living a life that you know closer resembles what what you're living. Just your your final thoughts, at least for this stream, from anything that we covered at all, or anything else you'd like to add. Yeah, sure. I think um, I think you know, for me, I've just you know, I, I'm very much still a student in terms of uh, 
the economic discussion. And so I've just been enjoying listening, but um, I think the overarching theme um, that, that everything that we've said is connected to is um, in terms of how the world is changing and, 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 you know, towards what, and um, you know, I think that one way we can define that is as, um, as some people have basically already said, but maybe to put it in franker terms, it's really just about, you know, whether it's, it's, if you're going to divide sort of the two camps, um, I would say it's people who believe that, that nature exists, that natural law exists, um, and people who don't, um, and people who believe that, uh, you know, nature, uh, if it does exist, it exists to be transcended and defeated. And, uh, you know, um, uh, what would you say, um, uh, bridled, uh, et cetera, and, uh, you know, and subjugated versus, uh, what, what I think everyone on this, on this, uh, call believes, which is that, uh, it exists to be, um, stewarded and to, uh, as a, as a series of limits and boundaries within which to, uh, you know, maximize our, our and, and to do good works. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I think when, you know, to relate that to everything we're talking about and to, to make maybe a more practical statement to end on, um, I think really the first thing, the first thing that you can do even before you think about getting on land or even growing, you know, um, if getting in touch with farmers and, or something is just, uh, adopting that mindset, uh, of, you know, um, you know, essential and crucial, uh, to our to our faith is uh is the belief that <laughs> the very basic belief that probably a lot of us take for granted but that i think is under attack which is that um nature exists and uh <laughs> you know we 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 live in a world uh that um is defined by by laws that uh uh have their source in our creator and um you know uh these are uh these exist for a reason and they exist uh in order for us to um in order for us to live within and to, to be able to um, thrive within them. So uh, I think, you know, just uh, before, before you make any, any changes that are, that may seem more drastic, uh, I think adopting that sort of mindset is a good idea because if you can, if you can change your mindset um, and, and start thinking about how, how can I, um, live in such a way that affirms a belief in the, the divinity of creation, let's say, which is what I'm talking about, um, then, uh, you, you know, opportunities, uh, even in even in the situation you're currently in, which may, maybe you live in a, a high rise in, in Manhattan or something like that, uh, and it seems impossible to interact with nature or some other city, um, it, 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 you'll, you know, the opportunities will reveal themselves. Um, and while obviously uh, we, we probably all share an ideal um, vision of, of living somewhere rural, um, as I was saying earlier, that's, that's simply not going to be possible for everyone. And I think um, uh, uh, Ryan was, was, was uh, saying in the chat that we should talk about, um, you know, the urban space, which I think we'll have to wait, uh, push off to next time. But, you know, um, there obviously uh, that, has, that will have to be... Um, uh, a context in which a lot of people will live in the future. So uh, yeah. I just want to say that, you know, it's, it's, it's about uh, a spiritual disposition um, as, as the sort of primary, uh, primary limiting factor. 
yeah. rather than whether or not you have land, the, the type of land you have, skills you have, et cetera, et cetera. All those things are secondary. The first thing is, is um, that you have the spiritual and mental um, disposition and direction to uh, live in a way that, that glorifies and honors God. So that's excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for those closing thoughts. I want to kick it over to bug because I think what William said parlays uh, really into I, where, where my guess is that bug wants to go. Bug, William is talking about being in touch with reality and interacting with objective reality. We do that through our five senses, of course. Um, the, the 700 year war on reality um, the, 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 you know, the sort of woke liberalism, um, of a generation ago made their war on reality primarily in the war against the principle of non-contradiction. In other words, they argued that a thing can simultaneously be and not be now in the last 10, 15, 20 years, the war on reality has morphed into a war on identity. In other words, a thing, a, a thing, uh, or a, a person is, you know, the idea of I am, I this am. This thumb is this thumb. Yeah, I am, I am a man. Right. I am a woman. I am a human. I, you know, now it's, it's transgenderism. It's transhumanism. It's, 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 it's all of that. Um, talk to us in, in your final thoughts, Bug, about how uh, returning to the, the return of the land movement is the antidote to the, to the latest round of attack on reality, namely the attack on the principle of identity. Yeah, I think there's, I can I can really succinctly go through a couple of different ways that uh, what we're doing attacks the uh, the enemy. Um, first of all, I think the most fundamental thing, and we often forget about this when we get bogged down in the philosophy of, of these various ideas, it's the simple appeal of your life, right? Um, I look at Michael and I look at these guys on here that are doing various versions of of this uh, imminent kind of life right they have beautiful families and they're making their own their own cider and when you live a beautiful life it calls other people to come live a beautiful life they say what ideas prompted you to go live this beautiful life i want some of those ideas too because i want some of that life um that's the most fundamental way Right, that it actually attacks the enemy is little by little. People will look around and say, ninety percent of the people are miserable. They're gnashing their teeth. Um, they're they're living demons um, with a, an absolute hatred for being itself. And then there's this little crowd of people who seem to be really joyful and happy. They seem to really love what they're doing. They seem to they seem to just exude. Um, some kind of grandeur that I can't uh, quite put my finger on, right? And, and of course, it's just the grandeur of, of you know, we sit on the shoulders of giants, all these beautiful ideas that the church has given us over 2,000 years. Um, so that's the fundamental way. The other way is my children. So uh, I'm going to teach my children to live this life, right? And they won't know anything about any other life by the time we're done here, Um it will be appealing. I will have built something that hopefully is unique and represents some aspect of me and they'll want to keep it and continue on with it and carry on. We're scratching at the surface of this thing, guys, right? Like I, I have had to teach myself um, dig this stuff up from the rubble, right? And I've had great men in my life, great priests and great guys like you who I've gotten to learn from, but we're all scratching at something 
that is long dead and buried. Um, these embers deep, deep down. And the reason for that is because we started out mostly, most of us started out so immersed in the error. It's in the air we breathe. It's in everything we do. We've lived it. Thanks be to God, my children won't have to. So they're starting out with a much more solid foundation. They won't have the same ideas that I have. Their ideas are going to be better, right? Because they're starting out with all the logic that comes with that agrarian lifestyle, with living the seasons, with the simplicity of life, without all the attachments to everything else. Um, and I think that's the fundamental thing. A lot of the greatest theologians and popes were farmers, right? They, they, they grew up as farmers. Um, and there's a reason for that. It imprints your ability to reason. And I was talking to this great priest uh, about this. You know, we live in a world where people are insane. The ontological principles, you can't even argue the ontological principles anymore, right? It's just gone. You get all the way down to the lowest level and they won't recognize the principle of identity or the principle of non-contradiction. Yeah. Um, but but living living in an ordered lifestyle from childhood, free of all of that, man, our kids are going to be way more powerful than us, um, and they're going to they're going to build great things, and they're going to create foundations for their kids that are even stronger. I'm an idiot, and I I I've barely scratched into this thing, um, but I hope that I can elevate my kids, and that's the solution. The solution is large families. Michael said it best. Um, he, he was quoting, uh, I think, Raram Navaram, but you know, family is the lowest unit of society. It's not the individual, which is what we, in Americanism, that's one of the errors of Americanism, by the way, yeah, um, is that the individual is the lowest level of society, but it's the family. Um, so we're all scratching at this, and hopefully our kids will take that, and they're going to be warriors in ways that we can't even imagine. Um, and unfortunately, they're going to need to be. Yeah. Yeah, they, they will need to be. That's a great point, Bug. Thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts on this stream with us. We'll go to Ryan and then we'll go to Michael uh, and we'll end the stream. Ryan, your, your, your parting thoughts on folks, you've done this incrementally. Um, you've, you've, you've made uh, individual changes. You've said, I'm going to replace this thing. Now I'm going to replace this thing. Now I'm going to attack this problem. Uh, word of encouragement to folks who want to follow in your footsteps. Oh, muted. Like I said in the beginning, if I can do it, any idiot can do it. So, um, because I'm not naturally cut out for this, nor was I trained as a youth to do it, whereas my wife had a lot of training in this sort of thing. And, but even there, there's lot, lots of things we've had to learn We've had to develop. We've had to figure out, oh, that didn't work. And and I've known other people who tried to get into land and some with some abysmally naive notions of farm life. Yeah. And in the end, they actually turned out okay because they learned really quickly that it doesn't work the way they read on some blog. And they had to get back to reality and said, oh, so, so it doesn't really work that way. And, and they made it work. And we're you know, in, in a similar boat, not as naive, but also working with very little and so it, it is in so many ways, there's little incremental uh, changes, finding out the ways you can do a lot with very little. And so and I've seen a lot of comments in the chat. Well, what do I do? I live in an apartment or I live in this sort of thing. You can have uh, little fruit trees grow in your apartment. That's not going to feed your family, but it's something. 
you can do uh, if you have like just a little bit of acreage in the in the backyard, you can stack up tires and put in your potato seed plants at the at the bottom and just just keep mounding up more dirt, mounding up more dirt, mounding up more dirt, put some tires, even four and five up there. And you could come out with 200 pounds of potatoes when at harvest time. It's uh, you know, the, the, take everything in your land. You know what it's going to do and it's going to benefit something else. If you don't have land, okay, then what can I do that's going to produce me something? And even if it's just growing herbs in the garden, you know, something that'll at least supplement you and give you something, even if it's not. So that, and also that would, what that'll do is it'll help you learn those skills for when you finally do get to that plot of land. There's other solutions people have been developing community gardens. There's a couple in uh, Pusco. Yeah. I said, you know, and there get some people who might be interested, someone who's got some land that they're not using. See if he'll set up a community garden and people, and I've seen these things work and everyone says, oh yeah, well, someone will just come in and steal it all. Not in my experience. Uh, I've seen either they've set those up and people come in and work them and they'll work their end of it. Um, you know, one of my book club subscribers, they they uh, are a, have a community garden they go to because she doesn't have land herself. And she plants and she tends it and, <clears throat> you know, does the various things and they get a decent amount of food out of it, right? So th- those are all, there's, there's so many solutions if you go looking for it um and i highly suggest like certain resources uh christian at iceagefarmer.com he does youtube videos a lot of it's warning about what's going on in the world and how our food supply is going to tighten but he also does a lot of solutions videos of people who've been doing this for 20 30 years and that'll just give you a lot of ideas for what you can work with and how you can start developing things and then anything that de- that depends on a centralized the centralized system on the trucks rolling on the freeways start making your way off it so like the last six months we did paper towels can we survive without paper towels and so we got rid of them and it was hard at first i was always looking for it and then we're gonna find a towel because then all the towels are in the laundry um but once they're not there it's like okay well we gotta make sure we're using the right towel for the right spill or the right mess and then we reuse the towel the maximum number of times before it has to go uh, depending on what you're cleaning and, and, and you don't want to leave obviously other germs and uh, things sitting around uh, for something that's cleaned up something really nasty. But in general, there's a lot of ways that you need someone spills water, reuse it, hang it up to dry. Um, you know, and that's just, a, that's one small thing. Uh, get, get cloth napkins, get rid of paper napkins or paper towels or whatever it is, you know, people tend to use, you know, get, get that, wash it. Um, and, we haven't gone this way yet, but we may soon. Toilet paper. That's another one, a nice modern convenience, and it's hard to imagine life without it. But uh, I would recommend, <laughs> given the shortages, uh, <laughs> starting to do that. That's that's next on the list to see if you can work that way, which is, is a far less salubrious thing than cleaning up spills or kid messes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, that's, that's one of those things you're going to have to look to ultimately. Um, you know, we saw the runs on toilet paper during the opening phases of the, uh, uh, what do I say to get, not get you another strike? Don't do it. Uh, Don't the do unspecified it. thing from the unspecified country. Yes. Um, yeah. Closed everything down. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, uh, you, you saw the people go crazy buying the toilet paper whenever they could. And then it was out and then it didn't, Costco didn't know when it was going to get it back in. Um, there's also plants that you can grow. Uh, they and, and they grow prodigiously in various places. They're called toilet paper plants. I don't know what their actual uh, botany name is. It's a very soft little plant. It's it's very pleasant to use for that purpose. 
um, plant a lot of that in places where otherwise you're not going to be growing anything and then start grabbing that. And that, you know, th there's another solution to another problem. Plus, uh, if you sit down and add up the amount that you spend at Costco or Walmart or whatever, yeah, right. paper and, and toilet paper and things of this sort, and, and it starts to add up. And it's like, well, what if I invested that same money in ammo or in food? Start thinking about, you know, test it. Um, what happens? So let's do a month where we, we don't buy anything. We're not going to go to the store. The only thing we're going to buy is, is our raw milk from our, our farm co-op that we get the raw milk from. And outside of that, we're, we're just not going to buy anything. Can we make it without going to the store to buy something? And that's a way to test your preparedness, test what you've got and how well you can in handle it. Uh, was I able to come up, up with enough meals? You know, may, maybe we had to think outside the box a little bit. You know, test it, find your weak points, find the things that aren't working so that you can then turn around and make them work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think as, as, as Ryan pointed out, you can learn so much on YouTube and especially if you're in an urban environment, these urban farms are, are really highly productive if you, if you set them up right. So anyone can be in touch with the land. Um, and as I, one of you said, and I think it was Michael, and we're going to go to Michael for his closing thoughts as well. It's not really the, the quantity, it's the quality. And that's so true in so many disciplines of our life, but it's certainly true in this aspect as well. Um, Michael Thomas of Sharon, triple threat here, someone who's read the books, understands the concepts, and is living the life and has been doing it for a long time. Land the plane for us on this show and, and, uh, and also promise me that you'll come back on and, and that we can continue this discussion. And you're, and you're muted. <laughs> And still muted. <laughs> Where's that button? Let me see if I can do it. There you go. There it is. Am I, am I unmuted now? Yes, sir. You're good. Okay, good. Um, I just wanted to, you know, op open the closing, Mike, with, with a show of gratitude for you. I know that you've done a lot of work and suffered persecution to open up this space and give us this platform. And I don't want it to go unrecognized. I'm deeply appreciating I want to express my gratitude to you that uh, for um, the persecution that you suffered and the work that you've done to give, um, you know, to give us platform tonight and to, you know, carry what I feel like is, um, is, is uh, a movement to glorify God, you know, in, in, into the forefront. So, um, so thanks Mike for having me on. I'd be, I'd be super, um, I'd be honored to come back on again. Um <clears throat> As far as um, closing remarks, I think we, we've covered so many things. And so I'm just going to get kind of basic. I felt like the moment in this discussion where I was most eloquent or the spirit was carrying me the most was when you asked me that question on seasonality. And so um, I want to uh, I want to return to, to, to that idea of seasonality and recognize the liturgical year um, and, and recognize that we're in a seasonal Lent. And I know that we're reaching like a, a wide Catholic audience right now. And I just want to offer up to the other people who are, um, who are, who are burning off their sins and connections, who are willfully taking on, um, you know, uh, poverties or mortifications, um, to really lean into our weapons of, of prayer, of fasting and almsgiving to defeat the ancient enemy, 
um, I, I, I want to offer support for the people who are doing that. So if, if you're struggling brother and you're listening, if you're struggling sister and you're listening, I, I want you to know that um, my prayers are at your shoulder and I'm sure that all everyone else who is with us here tonight um, are, 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 are at your shoulder and persist. Please, please persist. Um, so that, that's what I want to say about, about the, the seasonality, the liturgical year actually really connect to the agrarian season too. And maybe next time we can get into that. Um, but, uh, but yep. So in, in the seasonal, uh, it's just a, the basic message, lean into prayer, lean into fasting and lean into giving alms. Um, so uh, the, the other thing I'd like to say is that a, a priest, a, a holy man um, who I have gone to for discernment, recently said to me that God is in the ordinary. Oftentimes God is in just like the regular and the mundane and the ordinary. And we look for him and other things, but, um, but, but often God reveals himself in those, those very simple places. And, um, and uh, we can cultivate that. We, we cultivate that emergence as people through small acts of mercy and kindness. And so that's really what um you know, it's really what stewardship is and, 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 the, and the proper use of our dominion is, is that cultivation of, of, of mercy and compassion that Christ shows us. And so, um, and us cultivating that in ourselves. So I just want to encourage people to small acts of kindness and mercy um, with the way they do, you know, the, the, the way they conduct their lives. Um, and, and I think that will lead you, if you, if you do that um, and, and you put the glorification of God at the forefront um, and, 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 and the centering as William was speaking, the centering of natural order in your life. And you lean into that, um, uh, th that you can cultivate a life, however, slowly that, that, that is more in, in line with God's graces and, and, and eventually will, will, will glorify God and, 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 and bring that uh, kingdom uh, to earth as, as, as you know, as he's called us to do. And so to all my Catholic brothers and sisters out there fighting that fight, um, I just want you to feel, I, I want you to feel like I'm at your shoulder um, and that, uh, and that we win. So, um, Amen. so uh, that's Amen. it. And, oh, and, and uh, August 12th, 13th, 14th, there's going to be a, 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 a gathering of people you know, the, the chat rooms, the Twittering, the this, and, and the, the, these things are all so great, but we must meet each other in the flesh. We must come together in a real way, in a practical way. We must, um, we have to come together. Now, I feel that calling very, very strongly. And so if you're moved by what you've seen tonight, if you've moved by the conversations and the ideas and everything else, bingo, thank you, whoever did that. Um, uh, there's going to be more details coming out on that from Fred's uh, Twitter, from my Twitter. Hopefully everyone can help us spread the word. But um, I really want to encourage people to make uh, make the transition between the ideas to reality um, in however small. And maybe coming up and learning how to swing a scythe with me on those three days will help you do that. And so I want to um, I, I, I want to invite everybody and encourage people to keep an eye out for that. Let's save the date and we'll have more information on it soon. Um, but that's it. God bless. Glorify excellent. God in all week. Excellent stream. Excellent stream, gentlemen. Thank you so much, all of you, for, for joining. I want to do a quick review. Uh, this book here is a good starter book, the, the, the Church in the Land by Father Vincent McNabb. I also want to plug two other books as well, if you find McNabb to be too intellectual for you. Um, this one is a really good one. It's called Fleet of the Fields. 
the faith uh, and the works of the Catholic land movement. And Flee of the Fields is a good one because it's got so many different authors. It's got Belloc in there. It's got, it's got a history of the land movement. It's got very, very practical essays written by a whole host of authors, 12 different authors <laughs> on Flee of the Fields. That's good. And then if you are, if you, if you, if you are more like Ryan and you have the 15 pound brain and you, and you do like Bella, <laughs> um, restoration of property, an essay on restoration of property is, is certainly something that will cure you of this false notion that distributism is just socialism light. Um, so I think that, that that's a good one. Um, thank you so much, everyone. Please uh, subscribe to the channel, hit the like button. And if you like content like this, consider becoming a patron of Restoring the Faith.